0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Joint um, Select Committee of the City and the School District. Um, My name is Jane Kim. I will be chairing today's meeting, and I just want to appreciate all the members of the public that are here today um, for our hearing. We have two um, very interesting and very important uh, hearing items. I do also want to appreciate um, the patience um, from committee members and members of the Board of Public. There's also a very... uh, Uh, important planning commission occurring upstairs. Um, I just spoke at that. Supervisor Compost will be joining us shortly as he is speaking to that body um, currently at this time. I want to recognize our clerk, um, Derek Evans, um, and uh, would like to recognize um, committee members, Supervisor Norman Yee, um, Commissioner Jill Wins, and Commissioner Sandra Feuer. I believe we will also be shortly uh, joined by uh, Commissioner Hydra-Mendoza as well as Commissioner Matt Haney as well. Um, Mr. Clerk, are there any announcements?
1: Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of any documents to be included in the file should be submitted to the Clerk.
0: Thank you, and I also want to recognize um, SFGov TV for making today's meeting available live and online at SFGov, um, TV. And um, seeing no further announcements, um, can we please call... Item number
1: one. Item number one is a hearing on the existing curriculum being taught at the city's middle school and high schools regarding the issue of sexual assault, affirmative consent, and relationship violence, and requesting the San Francisco Unified School District to report.
0: Thank you, and we are also joined now by Commissioner Hydra mendoza Um, Today's meeting of the Joint City and School uh, District Select Committee focuses on our children and our youth, Um, specifically um, the adverse experiences that they're going through right now in our city and the long-term consequences that we'll all have to deal with if we don't take the action to protect our children today. In March, as we were kicking off Women's History Month, and again in April as we formally recognize Sexual Assault Awareness Month, I introduce a resolution supporting the passage of the Campus Accountability and Safety Act that is pending before Congress today that aims to change the way that institutions of higher learning address sexual assault on their campus. I also called for this hearing to answer the question what can the city do to ensure that our youth are being equipped with the knowledge and tools that they need to recognize healthy relationships to prevent themselves and others from being sexually victimized and generally what to do if they experience or witness violence why do we have to act now according to the pediatric's journal of the american medical association more than one in five female high school students and one in ten male high school students have experienced some form of teen dating violence during the past year Teen dating violence has been associated with a number of short and long-term health complications, including but not limited to depression, suicidal thoughts, eating disorders, risky sexual behavior, and increased risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Fifty percent of young people who experience rape or abuse will attempt to commit suicide. Violent behavior often begins between 6th to 12th grade, and we know that 72 percent of 13- and 14-year-olds, often middle schoolers, self-identify as dating. Just across the bay, the Federal Office of Civil Rights launched an investigation in January of this year questioning whether Berkeley Unified District responded adequately to incidences of sexual assault and harassment, or whether reported incidents went unchecked for years. These stories that courageous young women shared were hard to listen to and hear, but were a call to action. One girl reported that she was cornered in her school bike cage, her breasts groped by two boys as witnesses simply stood and watched in stunned silence. Another altered her clothing and stopped talking in class to fend off the onslaught of sexual comments and touching from boys sitting behind her. Her teacher's advice at the time was to ignore them. Yet another girl told school staffers about posting on social media sites that had labeled her and other girls as quote-unquote sluts. The adults, all male, repeatedly asked her if the label was accurate. We need to make sure that this isn't happening in our schools. We say that knowledge is power, but we also need to make sure that we are empowering our young women and men so they know what to do um, in situations just like the ones that I've described. Many experts in the field have told us repeatedly that while it's great to have a national dialogue about on-campus sexual violence, it is simply too too late if we wait until after high school to try to teach our young people about what consent means and what a healthy relationship looks like. So um, the purpose of this hearing was to really talk about what we're doing here at the school district in San Francisco on, on teaching students about affirmative consent, healthy relationship, sexual assault, and domestic violence want to also um, hear a little bit more about our curriculum and teaching plan, particularly within our health curriculum um, that covers these issues and how we can better reach middle and high school students. And finally, of course, the purpose of this committee is how can the city better partner um, with the school district um, if there are gaps um, in funding or in other needs to ensure that we are encouraging um, this type of healthy behavior. So um, I do want to bring up a couple of speakers today, Um, and I do want to start, of course, uh, with our school district. We have Kevin Truitt, um, who is our Associate Superintendent of Student Services, um, and Kim Coates, the Executive Director of School Health Programs, and I just want to appreciate the time you spent with our office on educating us on the health curriculum. I also want to recognize Commissioner Sandra Feuer and Matt Haney, who will be joining us, who has also been... um, Talking to us about what has been going on with health curriculum today in SFUSD, and I look forward to the conversation. Good
2: afternoon, supervisors and commissioners. My name is Kevin Truitt, and as Commissioner Kim Commissioner uh, Supervisor Kim said, I'm the Associate Superintendent of Student Family Community Support Department, which oversees several offices, but most notably, pupil services. Uh, school health programs and family and community engagement. So, this particular topic of sexual assault, affirming consent, and relationship violence is very, very important to several avenues in my department. I want to call up um, our executive director of school health program, Ms. Kimberly Coates, who's going to share some information about how we are addressing this need.
3: Good afternoon. How do I get the slide showing? Oh, there it is. is. Wonderful, thank you. I'm here to provide a brief report on existing curriculum being taught um, in SFUSD regarding the issues of sexual assault, affirming consent and relationship violence. In the packet we provided to each of the supervisors and commissioners You should have a copy of today's slides, an overview of the health education resources and California health education content standards that support these topics. Um, It describes specific curriculum organized by grade level for elementary, middle, and high school, as well as some of the school-wide resources and supports, which are outlined on the last page of the packet. Before we get into specific curriculum, I wanted to provide a quick framing for how this instruction fits into our Comprehensive Health Ed program and is not simply a one-off. Comprehensive Health Ed is supported by SFUSD policy, and this requires instruction for all of our K-12 students. Specifically at the elementary level, that's 20 lessons per grade level. At the middle school level, it's 30 class periods each grade throughout middle school and one semester for high school graduation requirement. The requirement um, of health education provides a pathway for this instruction and the content areas in orange Violence and injury prevention, mental, emotional and social health, as well as growth development and uh, human sexuality are an important link um, to the topic of today's hearing. The other thing I want to mention about comprehensive health ed is that it serves as a foundational structure for Tier 1 supports aligned with SFUSD's priorities the next slide, we're going to take a look at, by grade level, curriculum, California health ed content standards, and also um, highlight a few of the community-based organizations that are working with us to support this effort in our schools. Starting with the elementary level, um, as I mentioned before, elementary students are required to receive 20 lessons, Some of the curriculum um, touches on um, areas of identifying threat, being able to stand up for yourself, and um, the skills around seeking help. And although the topics of sexual assault, affirming consent, and relationship violence may not be thought of as a topic for students in elementary grades, Um, It's important that comprehensive health ed instruction begins early and provides age-appropriate instruction and builds a foundation to the skill set we want students to um, continue to develop in middle and in high school. Regarding this um, summary of some of the elementary curriculum, we do have some data showing that of teachers reporting um, conducting violence prevention and anti bullying lessons, we show about 44% of teachers um, indicating that they've done this work. So though, although we have the policy in place and we have materials to support it, we know we still have room to grow and we still have teachers um, not able to provide this instruction and students not receiving it. Moving on to middle school, Um, the middle school program is facing some unique challenges um, that we've been in conversation with our Board of Ed commissioners about. It's currently an additional subject area that science teachers take on to meet the policy requirements, Um, but we know that, again, not all students are receiving it. Um, On the promising front, the middle school program will pilot a health education class this coming August at the new Willie Brown Middle School. And we anticipate that this will serve as a model to extend to other middle schools. At the high school level, our high school program has uh, recently begun using a curriculum known as Be Real, Be Ready. It was developed locally through our Adolescent Health Work Group. The curriculum is um, delivered by high school health education teachers. And um, in partnership with several community-based organizations and agencies, the teacher is teamed up with the CBO partner. And on the next slide, I'll outline some of the specific lessons. Of this... Uh, 24 lesson curriculum, the areas that are highlighted uh, very much align with the topic of sexual assault, uh, sexual violence prevention, and healthy relationships. We have also conducted an initial evaluation of this curriculum uh, with 22 health education classes at five of our high schools showing very promising results. Um, Students are reporting increased knowledge and comfort on these uh, curriculum topics. And um, additionally, um, in collaboration with the Adolescent Health Working Group, we've applied for a grant um, for funding from the Department of Health and Human Services to do a more formal evaluation of the effectiveness of this curriculum. Um, If funded, this will also look at taking the curriculum developed in San Francisco and um, implementing it in Los Angeles Unified and um, looking at the results of that to further refine and improve. We're awaiting um, the award notification for that grant in July of 2015. So one snapshot of data we wanted to highlight. Um, is from our 2013 Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And as um, Supervisor Kim uh, offered in her opening comments, when we look at incidents of dating violence, um, in this slide we see from those students who report they are dating, approximately 10% have experienced physical or sexual dating violence. However, when we disaggregate this data further, and look at subpopulations of students who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and transgender, the rate is much higher. So we want to pay particular attention to making sure we're reaching all students. Keeping in mind that although we make every effort for health education to be a tier one support, we know that classroom efforts are not enough. And we need additional and more intensive Tier 2 and Tier 3 supports to ensure we reach some of our most vulnerable youth. Um, with that in mind, these efforts include both individual and group counseling, um, our program that allows uh, youth to serve as leaders at their school, school health fairs and monthly health awareness events, and some of the direct services provided through our school nurses. Another critical piece of our effort to make sure students are safe and healthy and ready to learn is to build staff capacity. And that takes the form of both training for health ed teachers, um, training for all staff, so they're prepared to respond to a crisis and provide support. We've been doing a lot of work um, for building capacity around trauma informed practice. Uh, for a number of our staff, including social workers, nurses, and high school wellness wellness program staff, excuse me. And then some ongoing training specific to some of our most vulnerable youth, um, in particular our LGBTQ youth, work around supporting our unaccompanied minors, our youth in foster care, and um, just recently have uh, did a presentation last week to all of our wellness staff around Um, human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation of children. So some next steps to the question of um, how folks can help, how the city and school district can partner. Certainly resources are needed to support this work and build on some of the efforts underway. Uh, We are currently preparing to enter our SFUSD budget cycle which will include a request to support the health education program, looking to the future with the Children's and Family First funds to sustain this work, refining our health education three-year plan, which we shared with the Board of Ed Commissioners in January. This plan um, is resource dependent and continue our collaboration to make sure we have MOUs with community-based organizations mentioned today um, to support this important work.
0: Thank you and welcome your questions. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Ms. Coates, for the presentation. I actually should also mention that we do have Dr. Emily Morase here, the president of the Board of Education, but also wears two hats, uh, literally and figuratively, um, as the director of the Department of Women's Status here as well to comment. Um, At this time, uh, comments and questions. um, Supervisor Yee and then Commissioner Feuer.
4: Thank you, uh, Chair Kim. <laughs> it's okay.
5: <laughs> thank Forever
4: you for bringing this uh, uh, um, item forward for our, to give us an opportunity to uh, discuss this and thank you for the presentation. Um, There's a cu- couple, a few questions, uh, comments maybe, I'd like to make. Um, the. The, the, the way you described the curriculum for the kindergarten to 12, I guess, um, is very good and uh, it's, there's lots of sensitivity towards age appropriateness in terms of what what is gonna be presented and so forth and how you're gonna talk about it. I, I'm just curious, um, um, I don't know what they're doing at the pre-K level anymore. Uh, I've left that few um, in terms of directly working in the field for uh, nearly um well 14 years uh, but when i was in the field for many years um the pre-k level folks took on this issue as well uh, with um, and again it's age appropriate it's the type of uh, um, reading uh, story books that were available for pre-k um and um and I know that 15 years ago, there were there was a lot of news about what, um, some of the abuses that were happening in 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 those situations. Um, I'm I'm sure that there's still a little bit of that, but not much of it. But at the same time, I'm just curious: was there any attempt to discuss whether, since you are a pre K-12 uh, uh, district, um, to include the curriculum that, to go down to the pre K level? Or is it something that uh, for breast practices they don't do that anymore?
3: Uh, Thank you for the question. That was my omission on the slide. It should say pre K five. And the three year health education plan we're developing does include um, early education. And the CBO that we mentioned um, on the slide number five. San Francisco's Child Abuse Prevention Center does also provide um, staff training for the early education program.
6: Okay,
4: um, thank you for um, pointing that out. Um, the the piece that um, so what, you eventually got that, got to the uh, the teacher training piece, or uh, the in services uh, in terms of. Um, having teachers be exposed to the uh, curriculum itself I guess Um, and I'm glad you're going to be doing that and not just turning the material over to uh, to teachers because I I know from my experience that that a lot of times teachers won't use a curriculum mean because they're not comfortable especially when it comes to these types of issues where they don't know how to talk about it themselves let alone the students Um, so that's a good thing I guess I'm just wondering um, if we're going to do truly uh tackled this uh, as well as we can um it, it, it would make sense to me that if we're going to work with city partners and cbo's and so forth um there's this is a great opportunity <clears throat> to open up those teacher training uh in services to cbo's uh, uh, because they we, we need to be consistent in terms of what we're hearing what we're saying how we're teaching the kids in terms of the vocabulary that they're using to describe uh, uh, something if it's happening. And if we're not not consistent, it's, it's going to hurt our effort. And I think, you know, a lot of times the um, kids might not necessarily um, go to the teachers to talk about this, and they might go to the after school program people instead. And I, I think it's really important that, that we look into this if you haven't already. I, I, maybe you're already doing this. But um, I suggest that that if we can, and I wish is are there city departments here that's funding any of this? Because I wish city departments were here. I mean, this one of the things you know, if this is going to be a select committee where the city is trying to work with the school mm-hmm. district, then I don't care what the topic is. I think we need representatives from the school district and from the city to be here so that we can engage. So mm-hmm. we do have somebody here. Hmm. Okay.
0: Department of Public Health.
4: Okay. And
0: and, and I forgot to mention, we, I, we did also, our office did um, reach out to a number of our private um, nonprofit entities that do this work, and they will be speaking during public comment. But just to recognize them, we do have um, SF WAR, um, Project Survive, California Coalition Against Sexual Assault, um, API Legal Outreach, um, Puma Prevent, and the Riley Center Services for Survivors of uh, Domestic Violence, um, as well as as the Department on the Status of Women and Futures Without Violence here, and they will all be speaking as well. So
4: can you respond Um, to to that?
3: that? Yeah, to that question, Supervisor um, I think we want to build on the model um, from our high school level where CBO partners are partnered with a high school health education teacher to deliver the Be Real, Be Ready curriculum. We've seen real strength in that on both ends of it. The CBO partner learning from the classroom teacher's experience and vice versa, especially around the area of building comfort level for the classroom teachers. So I think we wanna use that model as we build our middle school program, as well as at the pre-K five level.
4: Yeah, I, I I hope we do because, um, and we could get quickly to the elementary school level, where most of the elementary schools have after school programs that are um, working with them. And it seems pretty um, easy to, because they're already working in a partnership and to actually share this um, uh, in-service training.
7: Thank you, Supervisor Yee. Um, Commissioner uh, Fewer, then Mendoza. Um, Yeah, thank you very much, Ms. Coates, for this um, report. I have a couple of questions. While I'm looking at this, I'm wondering, um, you said that 44 percent of teachers um, actually did present the anti-bullying, violence education to their students. And I'm wondering, so you're telling me that less less than 50 percent across the board. And so we have we spoken to teachers about why this happens? Is there t- not time in the day? I know that um, Supervisor you just mentioned about comfort level. So is this actually something you have surveyed amongst our um, early educators?
3: We don't have survey results from the pre-K level, but for elementary K through five, the mechanism we use to determine the level of implementation is Coordinated program monitoring where um, every classroom teacher is asked to report which lessons that they're teaching. So the data that we have gives a snapshot of those who returned the survey. Uh And it was specifically accounting for lessons related to violence prevention and bullying. But big picture, we know overall each level um, faces some unique challenges. We know our elementary teachers teach everything. And um, we know many of them would benefit from additional training and more time to be able to to address the topics. Middle school um, is unique in that it does not have a standalone health ed class. So it's a fitting in typically in our science class. So I think the limited training and limited time um, challenges face both of them. Whereas at high school, because it's a graduation requirement,
7: we do have the course in place. Okay, so your data collection was basically, do you do it or don't you? But it wasn't why you are not presenting it or, um, but you are assuming that it is because they don't have time in the day and they're not comfortable with the subject matter. Is that correct?
3: The source of the challenges and barriers comes from our health advocates who are classroom teachers who serve as a liaison between health program activities and their individual school sites. So we surveyed them at um, a meeting last month and asked them for some of that to help develop our three-year health education plan.
7: Okay, thanks. And then I have a question about, um, do we have any numbers of reported sexual assaults for our school district?
3: I'm gonna defer
7: to uh, Associate Superintendent Truitt on that data. Oh, that's great, because I have another question for Associate Superintendent Kevin Truett. Of whom I'm very fond of.
2: Especially today, right? <laughs> um, can, I, can I look for the data on, sexual, on, on physical assaults? I can sure. get it from suspension data, but um, no, I don't have that right now. You don't have it right now. I don't okay, have it right that's
7: now. that's fine. And then I just wanted to know. Can I tell um, you
2: it's very low? But that shouldn't minimize the need for us to continue right. to focus on that. But
7: even though but it's it, so, it's very low. That is the uh, the number that are reported. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, are we thinking? Do we have any assumptions that we can estimate that of the reported ones, what percentage? does that actually represent of sexual assaults that may be happening on school grounds or maybe after school with our students? Do we I have any have that indication?
2: I, will, I do want to say that um, for a lot of the data that we do have, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that our wellness centers are very, very highly functioning in all of our high schools. The trust level, and you can go back to even when I was a principal, um, a high school principal when the wellness centers did, perhaps didn't have the strong relationship that they have now. Our students' response to um, the trust and uh, relationship that they have with the wellness staff, every year documented. The data is, is extremely, extremely positive, the trust factor's there. And that's really, really important because these are the, these are the individuals that people are going to with this sensitive information. And um, so we, we do get data from our wellness center, I will get that data. Um, Thank you. I think, yes.
7: think it would be great. And then to follow up on a, um, another question about the coordination of city services. So, um, Associate Superintendent, how are we partnering with SFPD on this?
2: Okay. Just an off-the-cuff thing, right? Okay. Um, no, it's really, I, I think our partnership with SFPD is very, Go very good. Okay, We have an MOU with SFPD, Um, we have a point of contact now with SFPD, we're meeting with our SROs on a regular basis, we need more of them. The superintendent and I met with the chief of police in January to discuss this because we really want to build the capacity and strengthen the relationship between our officers and um, our, our school staff and our school administrative staff. So, when necessary, this is a violation. It is against the law. It must be reported. We yes. always have a staff member present. It is actually written into the MOU that we ask the students for any of these sensitive cases. You have the right to have a parent, obviously first of all, first and foremost. but if it 's a situation that you would like a staff member from SFUSD to be present, who is the staff of your choosing? That person will be present in the room so you you 're not, in, you're not interrogated by um or interviewed by the police oftentimes in these cases it's it's the the what actually happened can go many different ways once you get into the details so um yes how the police are going to take that what the next steps are can be pretty serious very very serious and so um so we do want a staff person there so that also we're getting the information because this could be information that we need when the student shares information and it happens to be about another student in the school, for instance, and we would need to, to know that. So I think that that process has been communicated fairly well to our counselors and okay. to our SROs.
7: That's great. And then I wanted to also ask, do we have a confidential hotline that students may call? We do. And it how is effective the, is that hotline?
2: That would be the other Kevin, but Kevin. Um, confidential.
7: I'm sorry, the question? Um, about our confidential hotline that students may call, I'm wondering how effective is that?
3: I think the majority of the calls that we get are from adults seeking um, response to a situation that has occurred. Um, it's fairly rare that the call is coming from students. Yeah.
7: So is there any way to outreach to students so they're aware that they may al- also call this confidential hotline? I'm going
2: to say two, there's two things. One, I, I can't mention enough about the wellness staff. The wellness staff are pretty much your confidential advisors at the school, and they are really exceptional. And I'm, I'm saying that now because I'm a principal, and I wouldn't have said that many, many years ago. So I want to recognize that the, the wellness center staff are amazing, and the trust that they built with the students. So there's your confidential person right there. Um, I also want to mention peer resources and other um, um the restorative practices, coaches, and other staff and support staff, counselors that we have in the schools. The, the school. So whoever that student has that relationship, that strong relationship with the students, we want to make sure that all of our students have healthy adult relationships, that people that they can confide in in schools. And when we survey the students, those numbers can continue to go up every year. Do you have two or more adults in the school that you can confide in trusting adults that you know care about you? And those numbers continue to rise.
7: So no doubt that um, our wellness our coordinators and staff are very well-trusted among our youth, but since this is a subject of such sensitive and personal nature, that I could imagine that there are some students who would feel more comfortable with a confidential hotline and reporting it thus instead of in person. Um, so I'm just wondering if there could be something that we could make more noticeable to students that they do have this to their, uh, that they can use should they become into a situation that they're uncomfortable with.
2: Yeah, when we, one of the things that we did recently when we were working with Common Sense Media to talk about abuses in social media is we promoted the Safe School line again. And many of the students did say, in particular on SAC, that they didn't know about the line, they didn't use the line. So we were. Further promoting it for instances of of um, social media um, so cyberbullying, so I think that your point is well taken to actually kind of we need to repromote, reboot that that safe school line, so to speak, to let people know to let students know very specifically you can call about. Confidential issues. You can call about right. you know, cyberbullying. I think we need to possibly maybe reformat that. Um, that would be a really good idea, to actually make it more explicit what that number's for.
7: Thank you very much. And then I have one more um, question, which is that are we giving up-to-date um, training to our teachers and also just school staff about being a mandated reporter and what to do the proper procedure when a student comes to them and is reporting a sexual assault. I mean, issues around privacy, those type of things. And so is there ongoing training or do we train staff every year? Is it every two or three years?
2: So we are very, very fortunate, as you know, to be one of the few school districts that has actually a social worker in every single one of our schools, thanks to um, the Children's Fund and our support from the city, and also uh, a very a large number of nurses. I will say that this, the the um, the actual. When students report this, I think the first thing that teachers are going to do, they go to the social worker. The first thing, the, so- the social workers have all been trained. You have a point of contact at that school with a specific training, definitely at every school, that if you as a teacher do not know specifically what you should do, you'll learn what to do, um, but do, um, for CPS referrals, etc. But you definitely know who your point of contact is. If you're not comfortable with making this report, you are a mandated reporter, so you are going to call. But if you need support, you know who that is at your school, um, social worker or nurse that will take that ball for you and train
7: you. Thank you, Associate Superintendent.
0: Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, We do have um, one more, um, Commissioner Hydra Mendoza, before we call up members of the public to speak on this item.
8: Great. Uh, Thank you, Chair Kim. Um, So I just had uh, two questions that are actually piggyback on Commissioner Fewer's questions. Um, I guess, Ms. Coates, you can probably answer these. So considering the the very public um, challenges at our colleges around sexual assault and the way in which these are being processed or not processed. Um, I'm wondering what what type of um, curriculum we have set up for any kind of prep for college. And, um, you know, again, in light of the way in which these types of things are handled, so how do we ensure that our young people are prepared to um, go the proper route for not only reporting but, but for um, protecting themselves um, should something like that happen and then um the second piece to that is 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 just i want to i just want to get a sense of what our reporting process is so it sounds like you know we just kind of highlighted the the various places but should a um should an assault occur and a young person goes to the wellness center for example and it gets reported what's the process after that in order to deal with what we'll kind of supports are in place for both the perpetrator and the victim um, to ensure that, that there are some, some healthy outcomes? Um, I,
3: I think of the two avenues, essentially. One is in terms of the requirements of documenting and reporting to uh, school administration and consultation with the um, lead or assistant superintendents. We often get the calls at school health programs for consultation on that. Um, and then, in terms of the follow up and support piece, um, as Associate Superintendent Truett mentioned, we want to make sure that both um, the student um, uh, who may have been victimized as well as a student perhaps accused as a perpetrator, that there's follow up of support for both of those. Typically, again, at the high school level through our wellness program and at our middle or elementary through the school social worker and nurse
8: i'm sorry i didn't quite get the the college prep piece of it so is, is there any you know again just because there's just so much more that we know now is has there been some some added um, curriculum around preparation and um, I think
3: um the question my apologies for missing that. Um, points out another area of need as we develop the high school health ed program. And although the program is strong, typically it is implemented in ninth or 10th grade. So we have a gap of time for our 11th and 12th graders. And some of the out of classroom events, we hope support that the outside speakers, assemblies, health fairs, but um, we have talked about the idea of a second dose of um, health ed programming that could happen in 11th and 12th grade. Um, That's not currently in place, and it's something we would
0: uh, like to explore. Thank you, Commissioner Commissioner Mendoza. Um, And I just wanna appreciate the school district um, in putting this presentation. It's just the first I'm hearing, I I think, of of many more. And I know that the health curriculum um, is a continuing conversation now at the school district as well. Um, I first learned from uh, Commissioner Haney and fewer um, kind of some of the gaps that we're seeing in our health curriculum now. I know there's clear commitment from the leadership about teaching. Um, these types of issues in our school and how important they are and I just want to recognize there's so many different challenges and priorities that are thrown in a school. We want you to teach kids to read and to do math oh and then on top of that um, to teach uh, young people how to be healthy productive citizens Um, and so I know that some of that can get lost and I think I was really surprised to see some of the data points you know 22 percent of elementary school students getting that full health curriculum no middle school students getting the full health curriculum it, it's a challenge but I, it's not a blame situation we know that um, the schools are asked to do a lot with very little resources and our teachers um, have a lot of responsibilities on the plate I think this is really just an opportunity to discuss well we all agree that health curriculum is important we know what the important outcomes of that is um, it's great to talk about sexual assault you know, in adult society and college campuses, but what are we doing to even prevent that from taking place um, by educating young people today? Um, and so I hope that we can continue um, this dialogue. Um, I do wanna call up members of the public, um, many that do work around this issue as well. Um, so I'm gonna call them up in this order. Um, Sandra Sandoval and Alicia um, Maldonado from SF War. And then followed by um, Professor Leslie Simon
9: from Project Survive. Hi everybody, good afternoon. And my name is Sandra uh, Sandoval. I am the Director of Community Initiatives at San Francisco Women Against Rape. I'm born and raised in San Francisco. I have worked at various schools all over San Francisco doing violence prevention work for about 20 years. And I have been working at San Francisco Women Against Rape for about four years. SF4 has been around for 40 years, and we have a long history of working in the San Francisco Unified School District since the 1980s, and formally institutionalized within the school district in the 90s with our stand program, students and nonviolent dating. Early on, we have worked with organizations such as Men Overcoming Violence, and recently and in the present with Expect Respect, who's here to speak today, and we work collaboratively with other organizations as well through Expect Respect. We also get uh, called specifically from teachers who very much know the history of our work in the community, and they call us to specifically teach in their classrooms. It is important for youth to learn about sexual assault, sexual harassment, healthy relationships and consent as early as possible, because research shows that working with youth early on changes their norms and attitudes around violence towards women and girls. San Francisco Women Against Rape has provided unique curriculum that's culturally relevant to students of color, working-class immigrant families, and we are aware of these dynamics. We also know that there's political dynamics and institutional cycles of violence, that when institutions that are put in place do not have any follow-through around reporting, they also are continuing the cycle of violence. That being said, The San Francisco Unified School District needs presenters and curriculum that have an analysis on race, gender, class, and immigration status. And San Francisco Women Against Rape has historically had this analysis. And that in order to end sexual assault, we have to end all forms of oppression, racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, Adultism. If you present curriculum with anti-oppression content and make it survivor-centered, the San Francisco Unified School District can address so many other issues that are taking place around violence within the school presently. San Francisco Women Against Rape leads and facilitates curriculum around these topics every day throughout San Francisco. And lastly, we have to focus on more than just equipping youth with tools to interrupt and address sexual assault. We believe in the five-tier system. We have to train the students, the teachers, the administrators, the janitors, yes, the janitors, and even the security teams. All need to be trained with tools and skills to interrupt oppression in the classrooms. And administrators need training and skills on developing better policies and protocols that have follow-through. In preventing sexual assault, we are missing valuable learning opportunities by not equipping teachers with the tools to address sexual assault in the moment before the situations even escalate and the youth health rights that have been mentioned um we are one of the only ones in San Francisco we are your rape crisis center of San Francisco we are certified under the state of California as rape crisis counselors what does that mean we are not mandated reporters i will repeat that we are not mandated reporters students can call our hotline they can come into our building and receive services and they will and they will not be uh reported you and, uh, please thank you continue very much. on
0: oh So um, there is a two-minute timeline, but I can ask you to continue after the two minutes. But it seems like you've
9: finished, so. My colleague will continue.
10: Um, Thank you. My name is Alicia Maldonado. Um, I'm the community educator with San Francisco Women Against Rape. Um, Part of my role with SFWAR is to do presentations, support groups, peer education, assemblies, um, and tablings for uh, youth in our city, including the school district. to me this in, this topic is very important because it's estimated that one in three girls and one in six boys are raped before the age of 18. So youth are already dealing with these issues. Um, whether or not we're providing the tools um, for them to have those conversations to support their peers. Um, I would argue it is our, our responsibility as educators, as community members, to provide the tools not only to respond to this as community um, among our youth, but to prevent this and to create a culture within our school district of connection without violence. Um, on thinking why this is important, um, I have the opportunity to be able to, to talk about this issue directly with middle school students and high school students. Um, and I've had middle school students in seventh grade um, in sexual harassment, sexual assault presentations tell me um, in a discussion of where do you feel safe? What is your safe environment? Tell me that they do not feel safe anywhere, not in schools, not in their homes. These are seventh graders. So we, it is important for us to discuss these issues as early as possible so that students are not uh, internalizing that they are not uh, unsafe anywhere in their homes in our school districts. It's our responsibility to make classrooms, to make, uh, you know, our school campuses a safe place for students to be. Um, to be able to create a culture of safety, um, we must start young. Um, and in the groups that I run, I, uh, note, we do eight-week support groups. We um, see an increase of safety. We see an increase of life skills, and an increase of sense of community among uh, the young girl support groups that we run. Um, to, it is my experience that students don't just want tools to respond to sexual violence with their peers, but they want a hand in shaping the culture in which they live. Mm-hmm. Um, To this, I encourage that we are providing opportunities and tools to students to be peer educators and to expand awareness, not just of sexual assault and rape prevention, but also what precedes that, of sexual harassment prevention. To really address the culture of safety, of rape culture in which we live, and to provide the tools for students to connect without that violence. a few weeks ago, I get the unique opportunity to be able to discuss this issue not only in the school district but also at community based organizations and uh, a student a female student that I got to uh, present in her class in a health class um, as a ninth grader in the school district, I also got to see her at a community based organization and she told me three weeks ago that without our presentation from SF Warren from outside community based organizations, the school district curriculum would not have been enough that she was able to see after the community based organization presentations. Um, And discussions that there was a positive change in attitudes around sexual harassment. um, And that there were students taking initiative in their personal projects to take up sexual harassment and sexual assault as issues that they cared about and were able to educate their peers about. Um, So we see successes in being able to empower students with tools to address what is important to their community um, and what their needs are. Ms. Maldonado, just to
0: ask, what schools do you, or how many schools, or middle schools and high schools, do you work in in the school district? As many
10: as will call us and have us. We will, we prioritize the Mission District, Bayview, um, Hunters Point, and um, so we do support groups and presentations in Mission, at Burton. Um, I was at both of those schools this week, um, at Marshall, at Wallenberg, at (laughs) Galileo. We are pretty much in every high school, um, including the continuing. Um, the continuation schools um, and uh, less, some less middle schools this year. Okay. But um, James Lick, we were at this year. James Edmund, And do you get me. funding to do this work? We get some DOSW funding, okay. um, and Sandra can speak more to the funding.
9: <laughs> there is so much more that could be done. We only yeah, no, have I, two I, community educators, and yeah. I know that the other programs that are here that work citywide as nonprofits. We're all strained. If, I if, know you are. If we could How are say, you currently
0: funded for these two
9: outreach workers, just so I have a sense of where current sources. We're funded by state funding and federal funding. Okay. Uh, and we could definitely, you know, to decrease that 44%, we would love to saturate the city with prevention education. And to answer one of the questions that you guys had, I don't know the stat for the schools, but nationally 80% of survivors will not report. There needs to be more help from the community citywide response around sexual assault.
0: Thank you so much, and I appreciate you being here, and thank you for your comments and feedback on how we can strengthen um, this curriculum and programming in our schools. I appreciate it.
11: Supervisor Kim?
0: Oh, oh, sorry. Um, Supervisor Campos has a question. Just a I'm sorry, question for the question of SF4. Uh,
2: thank you. Um, hi, thank you so much for the incredible work you do. Uh, maybe you said this already. But how many schools do you think you have uh, sort of presented to?
10: Um, I would say that the the high schools are where we concentrate a majority of our work. Um, And most high schools we have been in in the three years that I've been with SF4 except for um, Lowell High School. Um, And we try to focus most of our efforts because we are just um, two, three folks. We have a contracted person as well um, within those neighborhoods that I mentioned. Um, And then we are in usually about one or two middle schools per academic year.
12: Okay. Okay, great. Thank you very much.
11: Appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I um, wanted to call up uh, Professor Leslie Simon from Project Survive, um, and then Christian Origel from Puma Prevent.
13: Thank you so much for having us. I'm also with Shella Cervantes, who is a lead peer educator in the Project Survive program. I'm also proud to stand with our sisters from San Francisco Women Against Rape. We work together with them with the Expect Respect SF program, which is a city college program. Project Survive started at City College 20 years ago. We offer workshops through peer educators. Um, Over the 20 years, we have served 80,000 students through 4,000 workshops. Um, In addition to the standard workshop, we offer uh, bilingual workshops um, in in English with Spanish, Cantonese, and Mandarin. So, um, I read the thousands of evaluations that we get from these workshops. And in the early years, what I read over and over and over again from our students at City College was, go to the high schools, okay? It took some time. We went to the community-based organizations, which are the heart of this program, and we said we need to work together. We need to serve all the high schools. To answer your question, Expect Respect is in all 16 SFUSD high schools. The peer educators, and Cheryl is going to talk about that in just a minute, they go for two days, and then one of our collaborating organizations like SFWAR or Young Asian Women Against Violence, who also will speak later, um, uh, do an, a third follow-up day. Um, I want to spend, you know, I want to give Shella the 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 floor most of the time because what they do there is pretty phenomenal. Um, How can you help? You can make sure that a program like City College is not cut. You know, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? (laughs) Keep City College alive, open, and credited. Yes, and keep programs like Project Survive open. And here is Shella Cervantes.
14: Okay, so I'm a, basically the senior peer educator of Express Respect, I've been for almost four years now. And actually, what I want to do is bring the perspective of our students, their voices, to this experience right now. Uh, basically, our peer educators go into the classrooms ready to take apart misinformation our youth, our experience, ex- exposed to prior to our presentations with the perspective of patience and respect. For example, a personal classroom I've been in, um, I had a youth ask me in class, when is the right time to start having sex in a relationship? My response, of course, is when both people are actually ready. But their response to that was, well, I heard from a celebrity in their book that if you don't have sex after three, uh, three dates, there's something wrong with you. After a little bit of conversation, I was able to convince that student that actually they know themselves best, not someone in Hollywood. So these are the types of things that my peer educators, Leslie's peer educators, and City College peer educators kind of have to combat basically with, with love and patience. The last thing I kind of want to end you with is more of their voices, the direct effect of how our education, the two-day presentation, kind of affects them immediately because we do evaluations right after. So some of the quotes that they have given us are, it was informal and it provided a comfortable environment to express our feelings. I liked the energy and the focus of peer educators. They were enlightened and respectful. It was very educational. I felt like I was a part of the lesson. I learned that I was in an abusive relationship and I didn't take it seriously because I didn't know when the abuse started, but now I do. I feel validated, like my rape was not my fault. If you continue to present to other people like what you did for our class, I think further relationships would be better with that kind of knowledge. I liked how patient the instructors were, even though, they were wrong some, even though we were wrong sometimes, we didn't feel embarrassed. I liked that they were clear and that, they actually, that I actually learned something. I liked sharing about these things. We usually don't talk about it. And finally, thank you for coming to our class. I'm glad people like you are making a difference in our community. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Shella. Thank you for speaking, and to Professor Simon as well. I was really impressed when I came to visit Um, at City College a few weeks ago. Um, I called up um, Christian Oregel from Puma Prevent and then Shaina Brown um, from California Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And then after that, um, Kate Fang and Denise Sikat Wong from API Legal Outreach.
1: (coughs) Hello, my name is Christian Oregel, and first off, let me start off by thanking you for letting me speak before you today. I'm the co-founder of the Puma Prevent, a rape prevention and awareness organization focused around utilizing male athletes to spread the message that rape will not be tolerated nor accepted in our communities. Now I started this program two years ago when I was 16 and a sophomore in high school. At that time the Studentville case, Maryville case, and Penn State case were plastered all over the media and they were all involving male athletes abusing and assaulting young women and then it being broadcasted all over the media. We do not feel like the repercussions against these athletes fit the consequences of the trauma left on its victims. So we took it on our end to apply for a grant from the Youth Empowerment Fund Board to fund our program. And what we did with the program was that we went into our community, the student athletes of Burton High School, and we launched our program in our curriculum to teach our students that we cannot allow this to continue to happen in our community or any other communities that we are part of. And we went about this from several different angles. First off, with our conferences and workshops with the student athletes. We devised a curriculum explaining rape culture, the different uh, classifications of rape, and what we can do to prevent rape from happening to our loved ones and preventing what is actually classified as rape. Because what most people don't understand is that what really is classified as rape by definition, they don't understand the concept of consent. And we went over that. So every student that we connected with understood what was going on in their relationships and what it took to have build a healthy relationship in their life. Next off we went about our annual consent is key day at Burton High School. Now to do this we needed to get the approval of Burton's principal Bill Cappenhagen and the other staff and faculty at the Burton High School. Once we got the approval we took that news back to our team and the Student Athlete Academy at Burton High School and that day We had the student athletes create posters in every different language ranging from Cantonese, Spanish, Tagalog, and I believe Samoan, so that any student that walked through the High School's halls understood that rape would not be tolerated in our campus, so that no one would be left unattended to, and that all our athletes had a chance to participate in our rape awareness day. We also spread the message and handed out flyers with contacts to SF4, hotlines for rape victims, and any other resource that the victims may need. And finally, to reach to students outside of Burden High School, after every football game that our players uh, played in, we had the players sit down in the middle of the field to hear our mission statement and to hand out bracelets like the one I have in my hand right here that have our mission logo and the prevents name on them so that anywhere that they went they would be reminded of what cause they were standing with and that anyone that saw the bracelets would understand what they stood for so that it could go from not just us uh, approaching people directly in Burton high School but anyone outside Burton High School could be touched indirectly by what we stand
0: for thank you so much and I I, was, I didn't wasn't. Um, I just want to appreciate the Youth Commission had recommended that you present um, today um, to our office and I really, really appreciate the initiative that young people are taking in their schools as well. I also want to offer an opportunity to your two fellow colleagues to introduce themselves and maybe say something as well.
12: Uh, Yes, I'm Tony Granberry. I'm a student at Burton High School. I'm a junior. And uh, with the PUMA Prevent Program, uh, I help a lot with Christian and Fonga here. The this program is an, a great program because me as an athlete as well coming into the program, I like I didn't really know much about it, and for Christian to come in and give me the information about it and like why is this topic is so serious in our country and why should join the cause of this is a great is great, and I feel like for us to give it in our school system and for the kids at our schools to get involved in this is great so they can know and they can carry this message on throughout life and for the people that come before them. Hello. Uh, thank you. My name is Fauna, and um, I-, I think these two summed everything up. They're the kids. I really wanted them to speak, but uh, I'm the Prevention Service Coordinator at the uh, Burn High School for the Baby YMCA, and I think my main message to the boys, specifically athletes, is male privilege, is understanding who you are as a man and your responsibility in this society to protect women, you know, because if you notice, we got Stanford cases, Penn State cases, Steubenville cases, and all those are boys going against these women, right? And so it's kind of like, you know, we, we, we put the boys out there, but we got to train them in the beginning. So when we did this, that was the go. You know, we got to give a better name for our, our male athletes, and, you know, we got to take charge of this. We have to do something as males rather than always throwing it on the, on, on the women. So, again, thank you, guys, and uh, thank you, Jane Kim and uh, Commissioner uh, Sandra Fewer. And uh, if you guys need anything, just let us know.
0: Okay. Thank you for your work, and we really look forward to working with you and supporting it. Um, Shana Brown uh, from California Coalition, and then Kate Fang and Denise Sikat wong I do have more speaker cards, so um, I, I saw that people had resubmitted their cards. I just haven't called your name yet.
15: Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Shayna Brown, and I'm the Public Policy Associate for the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault. CALCASA is a statewide professional association that serves the 84 rape crisis centers and prevention programs that represent all counties in California. California rape crisis centers served over 30,000 victims in 2013. CALCASA oversees Prevent Connect, a national prevention project that is sponsored by the Centers for Disease Control. Prevent, Prevent Connect provides web conferences, training, and online resources to primary prevention programs on sexual assault and domestic violence throughout the country. Rape Crisis Centers are the community-based organizations that provide crisis intervention services to sexual assault victims ranging from accompaniment during forensic examinations to counseling, support groups, and legal advocacy. In addition to intervention services, Rape Crisis Centers are the vital community partner providing prevention education and training to schools, community organizations, law enforcement agencies, and otherwise. Sexual violence prevention needs to start with youths. Over 25% of female rape victims experienced their first rape between the ages of 11 and 17, and about one in eight experience their first rape at um, age 10 or younger. With sexual violence, victimization, and sexual harassment behaviors common even in middle schools, it is clear that prevention efforts need to start early. Prevention in middle school matters for the healthy development of children and youth. Learned behaviors at this age will shape an individual's adolescent and adult life. It is necessary that prevention education be- begin before high school or college. By beginning prevention early, we can shape a middle schooler's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors so that they never perpetrate sexual violence. Calcasa believes that prevention programming should be comprehensive, layered, ongoing, and throughout a a student's career. A systematic review of studies by the CDC showed that a simple one-session workshop was not enough to create lasting change and to prevent sexual violence. Additionally, comprehensive prevention is not limited to classroom teaching, but should be integrated into school policies, response protocols, teacher training, and communications with parents. Finally, comprehensive prevention can create lasting cultural and climate change on each school campus, ensuring a safer learning environment for each student. In late 2014, an affirmative consent standard was adopted for colleges through Senate Bill 967. The notion of affirmative consent shifts the burden of the responsibility of establishing consent from the victim to the accused and has been dubbed yes means yes. Affirmative consent is not purely the absence of resistance or the word no. Instead, both partners must ensure that they have permission to engage
0: in sexual activity. Oh, go ahead. So can... your time is up, but if you want to summarize the rest of your points. Yeah. Well,
15: I think that what's really important is that you've heard from SF War. They're a member of our organization and rape crisis centers have been providing these services to schools that are, that they have the current programming. I think what you hit on is the funding component and that is really what can help sustain these efforts and they are a community partner that can be used by the city and the school district.
0: Since you represent the co- a statewide coalition, have you seen jurisdictions that do this well in California that we can model after?
15: I think that, um, I mean, I'd have to look into the prevention programming that is specific. I will say that prevention uh, funding was cut by a million dollars to California in the last year. So many programs have cut staff and then have limited the number of presentations that they're giving in middle schools and high schools. So um, I think that we'll see um, ramifications over that of the next funding cycle, which is three years.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. We have uh, the API Legal Outreach staff. um, And then I will call uh, Stephanie Nguyen from Department of Status of Women after.
16: Afternoon, thank you uh, Supervisor Kim for having us here. My name is Kate Fung, I'm a staff attorney at API Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach. I work on the Domestic Violence Family Law Project in San Francisco. Um, besides providing the legal services, we also provide a lot of education as well as benefits, public benefits and immigration advocacy. A lot of my clients are monolingual immigrants, and I think for them, a lot of the challenges in coming forward and telling us their stories, it's not that calling a rape hotline or calling a shelter, that's not their first choice. That's often their last choice. That's their last resort. Um, even communicating with the police, having the idea that, oh, I just, a domestic violence incident occurred, and having the idea to call the police, there's often a huge barrier to that. With their cultural um, hindrances as well as the language barrier. And so I think that's a separate issue that we're trying to address at this time. Um, I think in terms of the youth that we work with, um, I think it's really important for them as well as they often don't Necessarily turn to adult figures or authorities to empower the youth to be peer advocates for one another. And I think Denise from our office who works, um, on, who leads our youth advisory council, um, has done work on the ground with, um, students who are leaders at their San Francisco high school. So I would like to turn to Denise.
17: Uh, good afternoon, uh, my name is Denise Cicat-Wong and I'm the Youth Outreach Coordinator for Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach, tasked with the primary duty of coordinating our office's Youth Advisory Council. And I'd like to first thank Supervisor Kim's office for inviting our agency to provide testimony today. Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach is a nonprofit, community-based legal agency that pr- has provided social and legal services to the Asian Pacific Islander and other communities in the Greater Bay Area for the last 40 years. API Legal Outreach's Youth Advisory Council, which I supervise, was formed in 1997 as an extension of our legal work. Through this program, youth leaders from around the Bay Area do preventative work around teen dating violence and sexual abuse. Using a peer-to-peer outreach model, the Youth Advisory Council conducts trainings for other youth and youth-serving organizations which concentrate on defining teen dating violence, identifying its different forms, including sexual abuse, understanding the cycle of violence, learning their legal rights and options, and learning about the different resources available for survivors of sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. Our youth leaders will also lead discussions about the prevalence of teen dating violence in the Asian and Pacific Islander community and how youth of various intersectionalities, such as LGBTQ teens or undocumented teens, may experience DV differently. These workshops have been presented throughout the Bay Area with Manny in San Francisco. Though the Youth Advisory Council has not taken an official position on the existing health education curriculum at SFUSD, I have compiled the following recommendations based on anecdotal evidence from our youth leaders, as well as basic points that our organization believes an effective sexual assault and violence prevention curriculum should address. Our first recommendation is to review time frame minimums. To my understanding, students in high school, for example, are not required to take health class during a specific year. One of our youth leaders is a junior and still hasn't taken health. She expressed concern that health class is not mandatory in the ninth grade and thus some students go through years of high school before acquiring a basic understanding of consent and healthy relationships. Furthermore, we'd like to recommend that these minimums include rights, protections, and resources for any young person experiencing dating violence, sexual harassment, or sexual assault. I've heard that sexual harassment is a severe issue in several SFUSD high schools, including incidents involving teachers sexually harassing students and making inappropriate comments to them. Anecdotal feedback from my youngsters indicates that students may know how to report this behavior, but don't because they don't believe they'll be taken seriously. We recommend that all health ed classes identify advocates and make clear students' rights under Title IX, as well as the disciplinary process for offenders. Our peer-to-peer model shows the benefits of having peer advocates and leaders who are informed and knowledgeable about legal options and rights and can pass that information on to others. Since we have found that youth are most likely to tell their friends and peers about incidents of harassment and assault, we believe these young people should be armed to options to protect themselves and each other. We urge you to adopt these recommendations because we want to ensure that students feel empowered, supported, and safe enough to report these incidents when they do occur. Thank you for Thanks. your time and working on this critical issue You're hearing today.
0: Thank you, Ms. Wong, and thank you, Ms. Fang. Um, I just apologize, Us, uh, we do have, um, I didn't realize that Department of Status of Women was also presenting, so I want to bring them up even though it's public comment. Um, Stephanie Nguyen, and then followed by Marissa Snoddy from the Riley Center, and Kate Vander Twig from Futures Without Violence.
18: Thank you. Um, good afternoon, my name is Stephanie Nguyen, and I'm representing the Department on the Status of Women. As a women's policy advocate, I'd like to first say that it is truly heartening to be to join you all here today with our community partners and to hear all of the steps that San Francisco has taken to ensure that young people are supported in navigating their first relationships, especially given how pervasive and widespread these issues are. A major study by the CDC found that nearly 1.5 million high school students nationwide experienced physical abuse from a dating partner in a single year a substantial number of which occur in school buildings and on school grounds. One in ten high school students report having experienced some sort of physical violence from a boyfriend or girlfriend. In San Francisco specifically, as we heard earlier um, from SFUSD, among high school students who dated the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that 10% of students experienced sexual and physical dating violence, 20% for lesbian, gay, or bisexual students, and up to 38% for transgender students. The Department's Violence Against Women Prevention and Intervention Grants Program last last fiscal year served nearly 2,400 youth. It is clear from all of this data that the need for this work exists. Schools have a duty to provide a safe learning environment for all students to learn and grow and can help play a key role in changing the attitudes and and behaviors supporting adolescents in forming healthy relationships, and providing effective interventions when abuse occurs. While there remain gaps in how healthy relationships curriculum is delivered, San Francisco has been so proactive in working to ensure that there are policies in place to prevent, recognize, and respond to incidents of teen dating violence, and has developed age-appropriate curriculum for students on healthy relationships beginning in elementary school. San Francisco, as we heard earlier, also has an abundance of community-based organizations and programs that work in schools to provide support to students, many of whom feel more comfortable disclosing um, incidents of abuse and, and teen, dating, t- teen dating violence and sexual assault to community partners. Furthermore, San Francisco has even signed on to Senate Bill 592, the Healthy Relationships and Safe Schools Act, which, if passed, would ensure that other school districts throughout the state of California are able to provide guidance to educators, administrators, and students alike on how to address teen dating violence and promote healthy relationships in schools. I'd just like to end by thanking you all for your time, effort, and inclusion in this much-needed work and look forward to San Francisco continuing this dialogue in the future. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Nguyen. And we also recognize that much of the important funding for many of the organizations here today come from this department. I just want to thank you for your work on that, making that work possible. Um, I have um, Marissa Snoddy and then Kate Vander Twig. Um, I'm going to call the rest of the cards just so folks know. Jamel um, uh, Perkins, um, Howlin Fang, and um, Sammy May. <clears throat>
19: Hello, my name is Marissa Snoddy, and I'm the Children's Program Manager for the Riley Center, and we work with survivors of domestic violence and their children. Uh, Thank you all for having us here today. We're very grateful to be a part of this conversation, as this is something that's very important for us. Uh, In our shelter, we run a weekly support group for our children, and an issue that we talk about is healthy relationships and setting boundaries with children and for children to be able to know how to set boundaries for themselves and also respect boundaries and for us why it's so important for this to be part of the curriculum in school is because we want to ensure that uh, all the skills and the um, The different things that we're teaching the children and the youth in the shelter are also supported outside of the shelter. So when they're using these skills with us, they're also able to use them with classmates who also have the language and the capacity to do the same thing with them. Um, And for us, it's also important for it to be a trauma-informed approach because we do work with survivors who, uh, we do work with children who've experienced domestic violence, who've experienced sexual assault, who've experienced physical violence. Um, So that's one of the reasons why this issue is very important to us, and I also have my colleague with me, Yoli, who will be speaking in a moment. And also, I just want to speak to the response that we get from the children we work with, from the children and youth, and we work with kids from, we use age-appropriate services, of course. We work with children from zero to 17, and we do a lot of healthy education with our six and older group. And the responses that we get is some children say, "I know this is the first time I realize that other children feel the way that I do, that they've been through what I what I've been through, and also really wanting to know a big question we get is how do I even start a healthy relationship, Mm -hmm. and and then maintain it, but also how do I just begin it in the first place?" Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you.
20: Hello, my name is Yoli Magallanes and I am a Children's Case Manager for uh, the Writing Center for both the Emergency Shelter at Rosalie House and um, Transitional Shelter at Brennan House. Um, just to reiterate what Marissa has said, uh, a lot of uh, the children that have come to our group, uh, many times this is the first time that they feel safe to express anything. Um, they have witnessed violence, um, so many of this is also something that's normalized to them. Um, and. From what we hear, uh, we know that there's a lot of talk around bullying and stuff. Um, but some of them don't know, they don't identify this as uh, bullying as what normally we would call it for the younger children. But the teens, they don't see it as uh, a sexual assault or because that sounds like it's extreme and they don't identify it as this. they've never seen this. Um, uh, similar to the um, families that we have here, many of the adults don't even identify with domestic violence. Um, So I could only imagine why so many uh, cases go unreported with sexual assault as well. Um, It is something that is often stigmatized and nobody would want to identify of them being victim of this um, because of the shame that comes attached to this. So um, just to summarize, uh, we really are happy to be part of this conversation and we hope that we can move forward and be able to support our communities. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Next speaker. Um, If Kate's not here, then, just come up and, oh, okay.
21: Um, Hello, my name is Kate VanderTeig and I'm on the health team at Futures Without Violence.
0: You can raise the mic. Okay.
21: Um, Futures Without Violence is a national violence prevention agency that does a lot of work around healthy relationships, sexual assault, and dating violence, as well as domestic violence. Um, I just want to say thank you to all my colleagues who work at local San Francisco community-based organizations for all of their amazing work that they're doing. Um, I'll be brief and just wanted to say, um, or I'm excited to announce that Futures Without Violence is doing a learning institute this summer for schools in the Bay Area to come together with amazing community-based organizations like this who are doing such amazing work around um, bullying, social isolation, dating violence and other issues that are related because I do want to underscore what some of my colleagues said that sexual assault doesn't happen in schools with youth in a vacuum it's totally connected to bullying and um, dating violence and community violence um, and within a culture that supports um, unhealthy masculinity and homophobia and racism so I'm just really excited to hear that other folks are taking that on as a part of the solution um, so thanks so much for this amazing dialogue today and i'm happy to be here with you all
22: thank you
0: so much
21: next speakers
23: hello um, good afternoon my name is helen fang and i'm currently a senior at lowell high school i'm um, a peer leader from young asian Women against violence which is a program from um... Community Youth Center, and before joining this program, I had no idea what rape culture was and also what affirmative consent is. So I have to say that from what I remember in middle school and high school sex and health education, topics related to affirmative consent and rape culture were never mentioned. I remember always being taught how to protect myself. And always, um, being taught how to help my partner put on a condom before having sex. And I feel like because of these, um, to focus like these issues that a lot of female students actually feel really victimized and at fault. It was mentioned earlier that most calls to the confidential hotlines are made by adults, and I believe that one of the reasons is that our current health curriculum focuses too much on accepting rape culture instead of focusing on how to fix these issues in our society. Instead of teaching our youth to not get raped, why not teach them to not rape and not to, to not hurt others? And I also suggest, that we should focus on targeting the root issues of sexual harassment and assault by educating students more about more about rape culture affirmative consent etc as early as possible i first learned about sex when i was in fourth grade and i believe that students should be able to learn about these issues right from the start thank you
0: thank you so much Ms. fang for being here My name
24: is Sammy. I'm a sophomore from Galileo High School and a current peer leader from Young Asian Women Against Violence and CYC. Uh, I took health class as a freshman, and speaking from experience, I'm not happy with the current curriculum for health class. One reason is because it's very academic, like a English or math class. Uh, I felt like I took it just because I wanted to keep my grade up, and I in the class, I learned about things that I am able to get out of like a science textbook or even a PE textbook. And instead of just learning about putting on condoms, um, reproduction organs, or reproduction process, why don't we just learn more about more issues like consent? Because I think it's very important to actually know about the difference between sex and sexual assault. And health class shouldn't just be about physical health. It should also be about mental health.
0: Thank you, Ms. May. Is there any other members, uh, the public, that would like to speak on this item?
25: Hi, I'm Jamel Perkins. And Jamel, sorry. um, First of all, I want to say, in looking at the audience, I've been doing this work for 35 years in domestic violence. And to see young people here who have come up and spoken publicly about an issue that they feel passionately about makes someone my age feel very good. So thank you for all the young people who have shown up today. Um, I really represent the private sector. I'm the past president of Partners Ending Domestic Abuse and Battered Women's Alternatives. I was president of the San Francisco Education Fund, and I also serve on the Mayor's Task Force Against Human Trafficking. I've dealt in the world of domestic violence, and I know the cycle of violence. And to me, all of the work we've done and all the research shows, the sooner you break that sci- the, the cycle of violence and deal with prevention, then we can deal with this whole issue more holistically. So I just really want to back up any prevention work that the district can provide. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, seeing no other members of the public and seeing no other cards, I'm going to close public comment at this time. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say that this is the first hearing um, at the city um, and school district select committee. Clearly, there is so much to delve into. We had expected this to be an hour, and we've clearly gone over that time frame. But um, it's amazing to hear what our community based organizations are doing, um, how the city, Department of uh, Women's Status, and the school district are partnering with them. Um, and also to hear from our youth that are initiating so much that actually some of the members of the school board didn't even know about some of the projects that young people are already initiating in their schools. It was really important for us to hear um, about this. And um, I I just want to say that I actually didn't really understand what consent curriculum was until a year ago either um, as an adult. And so it just goes to show how how much we have to go um, to um, prioritize this type of education in our schools. Um, this is just to highlight the need. It's not you know, an opportunity just to criticize. We want to be able to support a more robust health curriculum that incorporates um, many of the things that um, the young people in this room have articulated that we want to learn in our schools. Um, and that it's a lot about creating the culture um, as well and how important that is. And so I just want to appreciate all the comments that were made today. Um, are there any members of the committee that would just like to make some brief um, closing comments? Commissioner Wynn?
26: There. Um, excuse me. I just want to thank everybody for being here, especially the students. That's the, it's the most important thing for us to hear from our students. And I did want to just, and I want to appreciate everybody's work and dedication in this area. It's so important, as we know. Um, but, I also think our job is that we a lot of questions have been raised here um, that are that are uh, thoughtful questions about the health curriculum and that we i hope from this committee will refer this to the curriculum committee of the of the board of Education so that we can pursue some of these exact questions about the uh, nature of the curriculum the nature of the professional development that we do and the um, appropriateness of the of and comprehensiveness of the curriculum so again I want to thank everybody and we rarely have the opportunity to make such a excuse me such a direct recommendation from this committee to a committee at the Board of Education we certainly should do that in this case thank you
0: Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Fewer. Um
7: Yes, I'd just like to thank you, Supervisor Jane Kim, for bringing this topic forward. I know today I learned a lot, and I think my colleagues did too, about what is going on and how we're partnering with our CBOs and how we can further partner with them and deepen our relationship. Um, so Commissioner, I mean, Supervisor Kim, so I think we look forward, SFUSD looks forward to working with your office too around this issue and um, discussing next steps and how we can further our education for our students also encompassing what we heard from many of our speakers today and in a particular in particular again i echo Commiss- commissioner joe wins our students thank you
0: Thank you, commissioners. Um, I look forward to working on continuing this dialogue. It looks like there's a need for resources and funding um, and that we absolutely need to institutionalize these programs and curriculum um, so that it's consistently felt throughout um, all of our schools and by all of our students and not in an ad hoc way. I just want to appreciate that the school district even identified the gaps because often it's easier to cover up and say that everyone is somehow getting some type of curriculum. Um, but, you know, I want to appreciate, you know, Um, addressing the shortcomings um, and really putting that as a starting point of how we can get to a better place and so I look forward to bringing this item back um, to the committee and also working with the Board of Education. Um, So um, at this time if I can take a motion to continue this to the call of the chair um, we can do that uh, without any objection. Mr. Clerk can we please call item number two and thank you to everyone who came today on this item
1: item number two is a hearing to receive an update on community-based partnerships with the san francisco unified school district financial support rapid rehousing and eviction prevention strategies for homeless families
0: thank you Um, uh, this is our second item today i realize that we have two very hefty items on on select committee today and i want to appreciate the members of the public that are here that waited for this item i know we're um, thirty minutes over Um, colleagues as you know um, here at the city, um, on the Board of Supervisors, addressing homelessness is a top priority in the city and has certainly been um, one of the top priorities for my office um, since I have come to represent this district. Um, When I was on the school board, I was also particularly struck by the stories of students and their families struggling with housing insecurity and the impact that this had on individual students' education, Um, education of which is an important tool to climb out of poverty. Um, I know that we have um, principals and teachers who are in the chamber today um, that have had the heartbreaking task of working to teach students who are struggling with anxiety, um, depression, um, insecurity, and other outcomes of not having a stable home outside of the school. We know that home can be a place of refuge, and for youth where they often continue their learning um, by spending, um, discussing with their families, working on homework assignments, um, doing um, play, and other types of activities. Since 2007, the number of homeless and marginally housed students in SFUSD has increased by over 90%. I just have to repeat that data point because it's so stunning. Um, The number of homeless and marginally housed students in SFUSD has increased by over 90%. And we're hearing that this number is continuing to grow as the housing crisis worsens and families in particular struggle to find available two- and three-bedroom units. The three decades of research on the impact of homelessness on children alone concur um, many outcomes that we would all expect. Children in homeless families are sick four times as often as children in stable living condition. They are more likely to have emotional and behavioral consequences, um, that it can lead to chronic stress, inconsistent relationships, um, and the damage is last lasting. Homeless children are five times more likely than their peers to become homeless as adults. Um, The effect on education is dramatic as well, and we will hear from SFUSD on some of this data points. Only 51% of kids who do not have homes meet statewide standards in reading, while only 48% of students who are homeless meet statewide standards in math. Um, I... You know, because of the ongoing issue or the public, publicity of this issue over time from a lot of our community based advocates that are here in the city and um, private entities have taken notice of this issue. Two years ago, Mark Bennyhoff committed $1.8 million to homeless family housing subsidies, services, and shelter. This past December, Google committed $2 million to three organizations doing work um, to help reduce the wait list for homeless families in our shelter system and also um, funding for transitional age use college and career preparatory programs, as well as um, an organization to direct um, giving application, um, application program that actually our office used to fundraise efforts for families that lost their homes in the Tenderloin due to fire. Um, This is a positive step towards addressing the great need of our homeless families in San Francisco, and this hearing today is meant to continue the dialogue on this very important issue. We want to understand what we can do um, as a comprehensive long-term strategy to address service gaps um, for our students that are unstably housed in San Francisco. I don't need to talk about the wealth gap um, that we're seeing here in the city, um, often a point that we hear about at the Board of Supervisors. Um, we know that even at a time of incredible economic success, that there are folks um, that are struggling more and more in today's city. And this is an important issue for all of us to take up. Um, so I we do have a number of presenters here today. Again, on this issue, um, I want to um, recognize first that we will have Joyce Crum and Cindy Ward um, from uh, Human Services Agency's Housing and Homeless Division. Um, Kevin Truitt again, and Salvador Lopez um, Barreras from SFUSD um, to talk about the data and SFUSD. Um, we do actually have um, staff from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development to answer questions, although they will not be presenting um, officially, and I also want to recognize um, Hamilton Family Center, um, who will be presenting along with the Coalition for Homeless. Um, and I also want to recognize that Rebecca Prozant, um is here on behalf of Google, that provided um, this really important grant to kickstart this initiative um, in our schools. Um, so before I have presenters come forward, um, would any uh, members of the committee like to make any opening comments? Seeing none, uh, we will have HSA um, Ms. Crum and come up and. and uh, Commissioner Haney, you're welcome to join us um, at the DS.
27: Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Ward from the Housing and Homeless Programs at HSA. I'm the manager of Family, Youth, and Prevention Services. Um, I think you have in front of you a handout that describes the programs that are funded through HSA that provide homeless prevention and rapid rehousing services. Um, where There was by service type, a brief description of the services, the agencies that HSA contracts with to provide those services, and the number of households that are served annually. HSA has been funding homeless prevention programs since 1999 and rapid rehousing subsidy programs since 2006, well before it became a nationally recognized best practice. Together with our nonprofit community partners, we provide a wide array of services designed to house people who are homeless and maintain housing for people at risk of homelessness. These include one-time grants to assist with back rent, security deposits, barriers to housing and critical family need, temporary rental subsidies, eviction prevention, legal assistance and legal representation, case management, outreach and counseling on a a variety of issues regarding tenant rights and responsibilities, diversion from family shelter through housing assistance and counseling, and expedited access to child care for homeless families. All of our programs are targeted to very low and extremely low income households who are the most vulnerable to a housing crisis. Some programs serve specialized populations who may have more barriers and are at greater risk, including veteran families and those with involvement in the child welfare system. Some outreach and legal services are specific to Act evictions whose numbers have grown considerably in the past three years. While the general fund supplies the majority of the resources for these services, the city also receives significant support from state and federal funds in recognition of the level of local need and the success of locally funded programs. I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: Thank you so much, Ms. Ward. Thank you. Superintendent Truitt. Associate
2: Superintendent, thank you. And thank you for calling both these topics on the same night so I don't have to come back again. Uh, I'm trying trying to find our, just one second. Um, It is here. Here it is. Got it. Thank you. I am, I, um, yeah. Oh. I didn't like that you did that. Okay, how do I go to the show? Good? Yep. All right. Thank you, and good afternoon again. Um, my name is Kevin Trudeau, I'm the Associate Superintendent, Student Family Community Support Department. And um, oftentimes when we report on our um, homeless students, we're quick to just stop at the number. And that number has been repeated, numbers have been repeated, and that's the end of the story most of the time. What I'd like to do today is to really focus on a new partnership, a strengthening partnership that we have specifically with Hamlet- Hamilton Family Center to um, further address and strengthen our approach to supporting families who find themselves um homeless. Um, But first I will start with what are the numbers. So um, actually, um, Supervisor Kim, I can go you one further. So since 2006, um, a 250% increase. So you were going with this 2008 number. Um, Oftentimes, again, we look at this number and people say, you know, what is exact, what is homeless? Now, McKinney Bento will tell you that Um, Homeless is defined as students that lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence that may include the following. So if we we consider homeless to be, if I break out this number, at the end of the fall semester that we just passed, we had 2,095 students identified as homeless. Of those 2,095, 1,288 were, let me go with my numbers here. So 546 were, that's it, 546 were in temporary housing, uh, 242 hotel motel, 1,288 doubled up, and 26 unsheltered. Um, some agencies and other people know this data better than I, will, um, when you see lower reports of homelessness, where there can't possibly be this 2095, this is where people are breaking out. They're taking out and saying, okay, well only the 26 really count. Because the state will often say that if there's no, homeless is only when you do not have a floor to sleep on that night. So, that being said, what happens when, what is the impact of children on, um, who are find themselves homeless? Um, Supervisor Kim mentioned some of the um some of the impacts. Um yes, the students are sick four times more often. They go hungry at twice the rate of other children, three times the rate of emotional issues and stress, eighty-three percent chance of exposure to a violent event, four times more likely to show delayed envelopment development and are likely to transfer schools naturally with shelter opportunities at least once a year. That being the case, this year we entered into, in December 2014, we entered into a special MOU and partnership with Hamilton Family Center. In the past, on the third Tuesday of every month, the Families, Youth, and Transition Council meets with various agencies, several of which are in the room right now, Connecting Point, Hamilton Family, Chinatown SRO, SOMCAM, um, Dolores Street Community Center. I could go on, there are several agencies that meet the third Tuesday of each month for the Family, Youth, and Transition Council. Um, out of that we established a relationship with Hamilton Family Center and we strengthened that relationship um, this year with great help from um, the Director Jeff Kaziski, who's also here today. Um, what we do, what this partnership does, is that our staff will our staff in all of our schools, the training Hamilton Family Center has trained all of our counselors, social workers, nurses, well They all report to my department, so we've offered that training to them so that they can contact HFC as soon as a family is identified as homeless or at risk. We allow HFC access to the school facilities for meetings with families as appropriate. We arrange for HFC to train the social workers, nurses, and counselors, as I said. We help HFC disseminate information to SFUSD staff and students we send an hfc staff member to a school within so this is what hfc does when we contact them they immediately deploy a member to the school, to the actual school within three business days. Oftentimes that school community is who the family trusts to um, to share their experiences with and when that happens in the past we would simply give them a contact number, you can call this agency. Now what we do is we call Hamilton Family and they actually come to the school within three business days. Um, when the SFUSD staff identify a family, they provide, HFC provides eviction prevention services for up to 40, 24, families refer- referred by SFUSD each year, they provide rapid rehousing services for up to 48 families referred by the school district, and they coordinate with our school staff on how best to identify and assist families who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Perhaps that last item is one of the, um, one of the greatest benefits that we've had, um, and I'm going to actually show you a, a video in a little while, but we've been talking about how do we identify um, homeless students. For administrators and teachers that have been trained, social workers, counselors, and, and nurses, each may have different indicators that they could look look for to identify there's something going on with this student. Perhaps I need to specifically ask what is your living situation? Are you homeless? So that we can provide um, services. That goes down to the secretaries, uh, cafeteria workers, etc. Since a partnership has established since December, we should say January, there have been over 70 calls from our staff to consult about homeless or at-risk families. Of those 70, 35 families were referred directly to the staff at Hamilton Family Center. Of those 35, 12 of the families prevented, were, um, prevent prevented with evictions. Nine families were rehoused. That's as of today. 12 families are still searching. Two families didn't follow through. Um, I think that this direct relationship that we have with Hamilton Family Center has been really um, tremendous. and. Um, as an example of some of the support that we're getting to understand how we can best support the families who find themselves homeless, there's a series of videos that help our staff so that if Hamilton doesn't come out and hasn't met with all the social workers, we have these three instructional videos that, um, and I'd like to play one for you now as a sample. Um, they're actually very, very good. So, um, but this is the type of thing that we're now talking to our staff about, specifically about homelessness in San Francisco. So I think I can. All right, we're going to have a volume thing here. The
22: students are homeless than ever before. The homelessness in the San Francisco Unified School District has increased by 94% since 2007. Just like you, Hamilton Family Center is here to help. This video is a resource for school staff to help facilitate the partnership between the San Francisco Unified School District and Hamilton Family Center. We're coming together to help connect you to essential resources available for homeless families. This video will show you what to look for so you can tell if a student might be homeless and direct you to the services available to help the student and their family get on the road for stable housing. Not addressing this problem is robbing children of their potential and their future. The student and their family
28: may be embarrassed about his or her situation, or not want to ask for help. Sometimes, a student may seek help. Other times, you may only know by seeing certain signs indicating the student could be homeless. You might see the student wearing the same clothes a few days in a row. Some days they arrive to school very early or start leaving late. The student might be consistently hungry or hoarding food. Other behavioral signs include not staying focused or falling asleep in class. They also have trouble completing their homework. The student might become aggressive and territorial, or sometimes the opposite, where the student becomes overly affectionate. If you notice any of these signs, you still won't know if the student and the family are homeless. To be sure, you'll need to ask either the student or the parent. You should always be sensitive when inquiring about student's living situation. Ask a student or parent carefully, but be direct. Where are they living? Are they homeless? Are they under threat of eviction? Homelessness isn't limited to sleeping on the street. A homeless family may also be couch surfing, living in a car, garage, or shelter or doubled up with friends or relatives. They may be living in an SRO or single room occupancy units or the child may be staying with friends or family while the parent is somewhere else. Hamilton Family Center can probably help, but before we do, we'll need to have the name and date of birth of at least one of the student's parents. Please have this information available to share with our staff. The SFUSD FIT program is also available to help support students who are homeless to be successful in school.
22: Once you find out that the student's family is homeless or under threat of eviction, you need to act quickly. If the student's family is about to be evicted, Hamilton Family Center's Eviction Prevention Program can help. Click here for more information. If the student is already homeless, there are steps the family should take immediately to access emergency shelter and begin looking for stable housing. Click here for more information. Hamilton Family Center was established in 1985 and is now one of the largest service providers for homeless families in San Francisco. We have a dedicated hotline and email for our partnership with San Francisco Unified. School staff should contact us when you're working with families who are homeless or facing eviction. Hamilton staff can come to the school to meet with the family and assess them for eviction prevention and rapid rehousing services. Call or email for more specific information on how we can help.
2: That's just one of the videos. There are two more. That's the identifying. There are two more helping families facing eviction and assisting families who are homeless. And this is a type of informative videos that can be carried on to, um, to our staff um, so that they can... Have that in, in-house at the school to watch and train themselves, and again I- increase our knowledge because this is something that is rapidly rising in the city, and that we're I finding ourselves having started to. Started I this. have no idea what this is.
27: Well, I heard it's you a commercial. Went
2: to the this is not my com- computer. Sorry, there was something going on. All right, that's it. I'm I'm good. <laughs> thank
0: you, thank you, um, Mr. Truett, for presenting. Um, so. Um, At this time, I'm actually going to just open up for public comment so we can actually allow um, our commute presentations to occur. Um, And just as a technicality, we do that during public comment time. But of course, we'll allow presenters to speak longer than the normal two minutes. Um, So I do want to bring up Hamilton Family Center, um, who actually was one of the key fundees um, in this $2 million grant from Google, um, which for the first time really provided services finally on site. Um, with our school employees so I want to bring up our executive director Jeff Kaziski, who will be introducing um, other members of his staff will also be speaking about this new program um, in the school district also uh, recognize that we have one of our principals Dennis Chu of Gordon J. Lau Elementary School as well thank you Mr. Kozinski
11: good afternoon Supervisor Kim um, supervisors members of the Board of Education thank you so much for um, calling this hearing and talking about the, this topic with us um, before I speak, I think it's, we'd like to have some of our partners from the school district speak and some of our line staff who are actually working out at the schools. Um, so I'll turn the mic over.
29: Hello, I'm Mariana Estrada. I am the I, bilingual case manager with First Avenue's Hamilton Family Center, and I'm currently the lead um, SFUSD case manager. Um, we had two families here today, and unfortunately they had to leave. Um, but I'd like to share one of their stories. Um, this family came to us through Sanchez Elementary the parent, one of the parents had lost their income and, well, their job, and therefore could not pay the rent anymore. Um, they found themselves really struggling. Their children were um, sometimes not going to school because the parents had to take them out to go search for jobs, um, and that's not ideal either. And so um, they asked They commented that to the school, and the school social worker called me. And so I came out within three business days, and the family was luckily able to stay in their housing here in San Francisco. We did that through our eviction prevention program. And then we got them settled into our rental subsidy program, which now um, is helping them stabilize their housing where they are now. Um, We're also currently trying to um, find them new housing um, because the space is a little bit too small. But also with the rental subsidy program, they'll be able to achieve that,
30: thank you.
0: Thank you
31: Hi good afternoon. my name is Dennis Chu. I'm the principal of Goranjila Elementary. Um, I can tell you that we have an outstanding relationship with the Hampton Family Center. Uh, in the fall of, uh, uh, of last year, uh, the, the APC gave us a call saying that we were going to have a family uh, that, that a family commercial that was homeless and uh, before before they uh, actually arrived, uh, someone from Kevin Schu's office gave us a phone call also to give us a heads up. What was really nice was that uh, we had a counselor from uh, uh, Kevin Schu's office escort the family to come with the registration, and you know that really helped out. As the family came and we made them, you know, uh, acclimate to the school, and right now we have two sites. We had a couple of issues in, in the beginning because um, transportation was an issue. I thought that, you know, it was something that we, we were, at, as a school, you know, how can we help out, right? So, chemistry's uh, office explained to the family, if you get your kids to come to school every day on time, our office will provide the, 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 the FastPass the fast pass Clipper card. So that was one part that helped. After that, suddenly so we found out that our students started to not come to school, be tardy, and suddenly they just, like, stopped coming. So as I investigated that, was, what happened was the, um, the adults, not the children, were at fault. And uh, after some counseling, uh, we took care of that. Uh, Hamilton Family Center was very, very instrumental in, in assisting. The students, the students are now coming to school every day on time. And if it wasn't for the support of uh, Hamilton, that would never happen. So I just want to let everyone here know that the school district, the school site, uh, Kevin Truitt's office, Hamilton Center, is a very tight knit and very close working relationship. And I do appreciate that when Hamilton says that they'll have someone out there within three days, even before the three days before the arrival, they give us the courtesy and the professionalism of the phone call to let us know that we are going to come. Thank, Thank you. Thank
0: you, Principal Chu. It's good to see you.
32: Hi, I'm Tara Godier and I, let's see if I could see this. Um, I'm a wellness counselor in the school district and I work at a kinder through eighth grade school and I've been working for the student family community support department for the last nine years. Um, supporting homeless youth is a near and, is very near and dear to my heart um, you know within our position I'm sure as many of you know um, we have a lot of responsibilities but mainly it's to build and maintain positive relationships both internally with staff and families and externally um, between the school and families and other community members in addition we are constantly assessing um, students home school and personal and community factors that may affect their learning And as many of you can imagine, homeless youth present with many complex, overwhelming, and often paralyzing issues. They often exhibit both internalized and externalized behaviors. And thanks to our strong partnership with HFC, we have slowly, slowly begun chipping away at their high, high level of needs. Having an unstable home setting and knowing it's absolutely unclear where you're going to lay your head down can be debilitating for our youth. So I feel very blessed to collaborate alongside my school nurse and serve as the bridge between our schools and community-based organizations such as HF- HFC. Um, HFC has served as an imperative connection to help us together create a really fluid day for these families, which is exactly what they need. I um, want to just mention, I do have one family that had Thanks to Hamilton, it has absolutely changed their lives. Kids that never thought they could succeed in school have actually made a difference and have transitioned on to high school, and one student's still at our school, and he's on in sixth grade and doing really well. So I'm happy to be here today to reiterate the utter need for the services that exist now to continue, and even those services, hopefully, to grow exponentially so we can do our job and help these kids. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Oh, thank you.
33: Good evening, supervisors and commissioners. I'm Debra Edelman. I'm the deputy director for Hamilton Family Center. So right now, as I come up to you, every time I come up to talk to you guys, my heart beats. And what's happening is the cortisol level in my body is rising. Homeless children, children who are experiencing adverse childhood experiences and the traumatic stress of homelessness, they have this heartbeat increase and cortisol rising every day on a consistent level. Research has found that children who are experiencing these traumatic effects of homelessness have physical as well as mental health effects for the rest of their lives. Thus, for the future of our community it's important to invest in keeping San Franciscan families housed and housing San Franciscan families. According to the San Francisco Department of Public Health, exposure to stress and trauma amongst children, such as that experienced while homeless, can lead to permanent changes in learning, behavior, and long-term physical health outcomes. Children exposed to pervasive poverty can show developmental delays as early as nine months old. And exposure to toxic stress has been linked to physical health issues throughout life, including asthma, heart disease, and cancer. Hamilton Family Center has repeatedly found that investments in housing subsidies and affordable housing solutions for families have a direct correlation to the number of families who are experiencing homelessness in our city. What this means for the children in these families is that now they have a safe place to call home. Their heart isn't beating like mine all the time, consistently. They don't need to feel uncomfortable around their peers when they're planning out sleepovers. They can complete their homework, and they can get a good night's rest before going to school and taking the new common core test or consent curriculum. This is working, and we need to keep it working now. How? By following the roadmap to end family homelessness and investing in proposals to keep San, Franciscan ha- San Franciscans housed and house San Franciscans. Continuing to invest in private market subsidies for families, both short term subsidies and longer need based subsidies. Placing homeless households in turnover nonprofit housing units and affordable housing. Moving homeless households into vacant San Francisco Housing Authority units and preventing homelessness through providing eviction defense, mediation, and culturally and linguistically appropriate outreach and education to at-risk households in San Francisco. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Deborah.
11: Thank you again. Jeff Kasitsky with Hamilton Family Center. Um, really, what I'd like to do is share some, some very good news. Um, In 2006, the number of homeless families in San Francisco started to increase dramatically. And as Supervisor Kim mentioned, those numbers um, nearly doubled um, by 2013. Um, There were over 2,300 students who were homeless um, in the San Francisco Unified School District. And the wait list for family shelter went from, might have been consistently about 70 or 80 families, to a high watermark of 287 families. About a year ago at this time during the the budget season, um, Compass, Family Services, uh, Hamilton, Catholic Charities, Homeless Prenatal, uh, Raphael House, Providence Foundation, um, along with um, Trent and Cindy and Joyce from HSA and leadership from Supervisor Kim uh, and Supervisor Farrell and um, Mayor Ed Lee and and President um, London Breed um, all came together and decided that it was time to start scaling up some of the interventions that we know work. That meant there was an increased investment in rapid rehousing, an increased investment in housing for homeless families, and um, an increased investment in eviction prevention. Um, we also reached out to some of our corporate um, Uh, The corporate community and folks like Salesforce and especially our friends from Google um, stepped up with very large um, donations um, in the millions of dollars to help this effort to end family homelessness. And today, I get to stand before you and tell you that the waiting list for family shelter is now down to 137 families, a drop of about 150 families. Uh, The numbers that Kevin Truitt presented showed that the numbers um, at the end of the school year last year actually have gone down. We are being successful folks, and this isn't about just the school district, um, this is about the whole city coming together to work on this problem. We are making progress. Um, ho- however, we've seen sort of surges in funding before where the numbers have dipped down and then they went right back up again. What's important right now is that we keep investing in the things that we know work, rapid rehousing, eviction prevention, affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, access to public housing. If we keep doing these things, I think by Christmas, we're going to see the waiting list um, below 100. And I think if we follow the uh, roadmap to end family homelessness that other folks are going to present on today, I think that we could actually effectively end family homelessness. And what we should be doing we have an, a great emergency system in our city, but it's just overwhelmed right now, and, it, and there's too many people waiting for too long to get services. And as Deborah mentioned, the longer children have to wait, the greater the impact this problem has on their, on, on their brain development. We need to get families housed within 90 days of becoming homeless at the most, and we're – moving in that direction so I'm so excited to announce all of this to you I hope that you all will continue to support this partnership we will continue to support more funding because I think it would just be such a great thing for San Francisco to say that we're one of the first cities in the country to end family homelessness and I think within three to five years we actually can do that so I'm so grateful to all of you for taking the time to learn more about this and I think together as a community we can we can end family homelessness so thank you very much.
22: Thank you,
0: Mr. Koziski, and I really appreciate your long-term leadership on this issue. And Will you be able to stay um, through public comment? Because I do have some questions, but I recognize that there are many members of the public that have been waiting for a while, so I want to... Um, get to members of the public before we get to ask more questions because I want to hear more. I think that this is great news and it's great that we are able to have a private entity like Google be able to fund this pilot um, to see what we what is possible. Um, but I do want members of the public, um, many of our families who are here today to be able to speak first and then maybe you can ask questions after public comment if that's okay with the committee. I do know that we have a member public that needs to leave soon, so um, I'm going to have him go first and then I'm going to call um, the next 10 cards.
6: I can speak now? Yes. Hi, go my ahead. name is Lucio, and um, I'd like to thank you for, uh, for the shelter. I was born and raised here. If you don't
0: mind bringing the mic up to your.
6: Uh, <laughs> thank you. You know, this is, this is very emotional. I got a little eight-year-old boy, brown hair, brown eyes, everything. Now, looking for a place, it's right. to me, it's hard. If you got kids, it's you not know, like it's emotional. I'm 52 years old, I'm a strong man, but I'll come to my son, I'm weak. That little boy is my hero. Now, the experience, wise experience, there's not that many places for, um, dads. Pretty much a lot of places got closed down. There's a lot of places for women. No disrespect to the women. But I got closed down by a lot of places. You know what I mean? By a lot of places. Now, I'm a single dad. Mother pays me child support. So I'm, t- I'm 24 hours a dad. You know what I mean? 24 hours. Now, the thing is, I don't, I don't, you are not know, neck is cool. It, you know, but, you know, I don't need it. I need a place to stay. You know what I mean? I don't need... Now, is nice. Yeah. Let me tell you. But I see, need some improvement. I sleep on a jail bed. Okay. Okay. Maybe that's the best you guys could do. I don't know. But the Hamilton did give me a room and board, and I, I love all the staff there. But you got to make it more family-friendly. That it put some cartoons on the wall. You know, and the food, it's got to be more kid-friendly because I saw my son not really eating. I'm eating. It's like adult food. No disrespect to the place, but this is my experience. You know, my experience. I walk through the city of San Francisco. Um, I look at all these million-dollar buildings. with about 500 million being put in the city? I was born and raised here. I, I see all these big buildings. So now I'm just wondering what you can do for the kids here. It's about the kids. Like I said, I got a little eight-year-old boy. I love the sh- I love him. But I'm looking for a better place for him. You know what I mean? And I'm looking for help. Now, I don't know if you guys do anything for guys. I don't know. But you want to experience, Why parents, grab your little niece, nephew, and walk through the streets with two suitcases and try to find out if you can find resources. Now, try calling for a bed. If you don't get a bed, out. you're gonna sleep on the floor, period. You know what I mean? On a jail bed, on a jail pillow. That's what it is. So the real experience, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but you know, like I said, they need more places like the Hampton. They do. The staff is great. But like I said, you got to make the food a little bit kid friendly. You got to change the bed if you could, the jail beds. Change it if you could, if you could find the money. Um, put some cartoons. I'm pretty sure you can find some artists in San Francisco to paint the wall, little kids. and.
0: If I can ask you to wrap up, I'm sorry with your oh, comments, yeah, yeah. but we really appreciate you being but, here and waiting.
6: But no, no, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's just emotional. You know, how I'm emotional. is it's like fireworks. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So, you know, I try to keep a composure with my son. to tell, You know, everything's going to be right. So, like right now, he knows I'm going to a meeting today, but he's going to ask me how to go. I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting for the answer for you guys. But if you want to read spiritual experience, grab your niece or your kids and try walking the street make some phone calls. If you don't get a bed, pretend you don't got no place to go. Where are you going to go?
0: Thank you're going to you. be sleeping
6: on the floor but you need more places like this with beds thank you so that's it
0: thank you Lucio. thank you so much for coming to speak um, i'm going to call up 10 speaker cards um i have wilma Archerberry, um qi ping Zhang, rui uh, shi li li ming dang angela chu juvi um, barboria uh, miriam marin Socom Campos, Donnell Herrera, and Helen Lamar.
12: Good evening. My name is Wilma Arderberry. I'm a grandmother. If you don't
0: mind speaking closer to the mic, um, the meeting's recorded so members of the public can hear outside chambers too.
12: Thank you. My name is Wilma Arterbury. I'm a grandmother, 57 years old. I work and go to school here. I grew up in San Francisco, Hayden, Ashbury. I want to thank Mr. Lee for cleaning our city up, giving us um, the tallest, and getting our streets clean. I'm at the Hamilton Family Shelter. Am I scared? Yes, I'm on the streets. I've never been on the streets. I've always worked and had a place. Getting a house now is hard. I got grandkids hopping and skipping houses. And my kids are in school. I got two graduating now, one in New Orleans, for the leadership. This is Maurice. He's at um, John Muir. I wanna tell you John Muir made me feel like a human being again. John Muir for parents has a family room. I can wash, cook and clean. Once my wheels go to school, I would be on the street by myself and I pray I did. I asked Mr. Lee and I also wrote Center Boxer. I asked her for the thirteenth Street Center so we can still go in and wash our clothes and pay our kids. You're on the streets is bad enough you pray to everyone, but you got no place. I'm at the Hamilton, I'm a preacher to a roof of my head and the food they give me and my kids. We're not that stressed, but I'm stressed because I've never seen a city no houses. How we got technology, we got business, but we got a dollar for a bus stop. We don't have a house for our family. The family make the city too. I want to be here. I want to go to school. I don't want to go outside the city. This is my city. I want the city to be given back to the families. Can you open your hearts and find some money for us as they did the 13th Street Center? And I want to thank Senator Boxer and Mr. Lee again.
0: Thank you, Ms. Arterberry. Thank you for speaking. I know it's hard to get these really important stories out in two minutes. And I apologize that, that that's a time constraint that we have, and I will do my best to accommodate um, the stories that best we can.
34: Good afternoon, commissioners and supervisors. My name is Helen Lamar, and I am the executive director of the Providence Foundation, who works in coalition with some of the Hesper members, Hamilton Family Center, and a lot of the other shelters to provide emergency homeless shelter. We operate three shelter sites in the city, and one is the First Friendship Institutional Baptist Church, where we have 55 spaces for homeless families. We have also, in 2000, built a 73-unit building in which we put 55 formerly homeless families with a total of t- today 120 children. We have been in operation since 1997 and our main focus is homelessness. We have three shelters and at one point we had five, but we do house, uh, people that are in need. We feed them and we clothe them when necessary as well as give them emergency shelter each night. We have been doing this since the year 2000, funded by the city city and county of San Francisco. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lamar, for being here. I called up um, eight other speakers. Um, At any time, please just come up. Feel free um, to line up. Hola, buenas tardes.
30: Um, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Mi nombre es Miriam. Um, her name is Miriam. Uh, yo en el pasado, yo fui uh, desamparada de vivienda. Y sin trabajo junto con mi hija de 10 años. Y no sabía, uh, no sabía donde ir. Estuve uh, en diferentes shelters.
34: The past she was homeless, she don't know where she go. She don't have no jobs, no, not, no where she go. And she has a daughter, 10 years old, and she's uh, and she was a single mother. She went to the different shelters. Y uh, Hasta que me aceptaron en un en un shelter, y es así
30: como estuve en casi diferentes shelters por más de un año. Y mi mortificación era no saber cómo darle de comer a mi hija. Y cómo establecerme con ella para poderla tranquilizar para que ella pudiera tener una vivienda. Yeah,
34: so. And she's finally, she accepted in the shelter for a year. And she's transferred to another shelter. And she don't know how to she feed, um, give it some food to her, her daughter. And she's finally, she, I don't know, she has a house.
35: Gracias. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Miriam. Thank you for speaking.
35: Um, Good evening, uh, Board of Supervisors and Commissioners. Uh, My name is Juvi Barbonio. I am the United Families Coordinator of SOMCAN. I'm here to read a letter from one of our clients who lives in an SRO but was unable to come here because of a pressing family problem. March 4, 2014 was when I came here in San Francisco, California, from the Philippines. All of us, we are excited and full of hopes that our life will be better, knowing that the U.S. is a first-world country. However, when we arrived here, life was not as good as we expected. During the first few days of our arrival, we transferred from one residence to another because we didn't have money to rent rooms. Neither could we find jobs because we have to wait for our Social Security cards and California ID. Fortunately, we were able to get food stamps, which helped us a lot for our daily sustenance. We then found a vacant room in a hotel in Market Street, in which we stayed until now because it's too hard to apply for low-income housing. Since the time we stayed in this hotel, we suffered too much anguish, not only because it is small and not enough for five members in our family, and the bathroom and toilets, which ha- we have to share with the rest of the tenants. We encountered anxiety every day, especially during nighttime, due to the bed bugs, cockroaches, rats, and the termites, which kept interrupting our sleeps due to the bites. I always send my children to the clinic for checkups and treatment. Not only that, because of the small room we are staying, the ventilation is not good, and when one of us gets cough or is sick, all of us will get ill, too, because four of us share the same bed, at night. But but despite what we are facing now, we are willing to stay and move in in this place as we know someday, somehow, there are people and communities who are open-handed to help us attain our dreams in the future. In closing, homelessness, we understand that homelessness could not be solved overnight, but homelessness for uh, families could be lessened if the government or if the city government will invest in housing for them. Thank you.
36: Thank you, Miss Barbonio. Msaikong to Young everyone my name
30: is Li Ming Deng. I have a family of four living in a s very small SR unit in Chinatown. Needless to say um, my children, they do not have enough space to do their homework. And also the rent has been raising rapidly. Recently, I'm afraid that soon I will, I will be living on the street. Um, I hope that the city can work together in supporting the plan on ending family homelessness. Thank you.
34: Thank you.
37: Hello, Hello everyone, my name is Chui-Ping Zhang. I've lived in an ASAR unit in Chinatown for over eight years. Uh, uh, 大家, 和大家說一下, um,
30: I'm very happy to share with you that I moved into a new apartment last month through the HSA subsidy program called Lobst because you know it's very difficult
37: living in a sur route. Um, Um, However, there are still over 450
30: families living in Chinatown SROs. Um, I hope that the government can do something to help these families so they can also have adequate housing. Thank you.
38: Thank
0: you. Can I I ask where you were placed? Were you placed in affordable housing or were you placed in um, private?
30: They were referred to Broadway Sanfam apartment in Chinatown.
0: Okay, great,
39: thank you. Thank you. Congratulations.
40: Hi, Supervisors and Commissioners, I'm Julie Ni. Nee. I live in Chinatown S.O.
39: building. I'm a single mom uh, with my son living in a very tiny room. I'm
40: a single mom with my son living in a very
39: tiny room. Uh, 但是我的收入很低, 所以呢, uh, 都沒辦法, 即給得起個好, uh, 即個貴的救金,
40: I wish I could provide better housing for my son, but since my income is so low, there won't be able to afford um better housing. Mm.
39: Um, the condition in the building
34: wasn't
40: that good. We can smell people smoking marijuana in our room. Um, that Robberies and things happening. So, and rent has been increasing a lot for SROs lately. And we are very worried about the situation for
39: families at this time. <laughs> I know that COH has a
40: five-year plan to end family homelessness. I hope that this plan can become a reality so many families could benefit and have better housing.
39: Gamodo I hope I
40: would be one of the lucky family that get into that housing so my son will have a good place to study to live and
39: that's my wish.
40: So I hope that um, Supervisors and our city departments could support this five-year plan so that our families could have a better place. Thank you.
39: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Ms. Lee. I'm going to call up a couple of more name cards. I, I, I recognize that we still have one more speaker. Um, Latonya Dixon, Betty Vasquez, Joanne um, Garcia, um, Miguel uh, Carrera, Raul Fernandez. Um, Maurice Schult, Julia Antonio. Um,
16: Jesus hola. Perez.
0: Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm still calling names. And actually, we have sorry. one more speaker, if you don't mind lining up behind her. There's uh, oh. a, the line is over there. I'm
41: not translate for her.
0: Oh. Okay. She's speaking ahead. Oh, okay. OK. Yeah. Feel free to line up, though. Iema um, uh, Nunez and Julie Nee.
40: Go I am glad to have the opportunity to speak before you. <音樂><音樂> 我本人我叫You Yi Lee我住在 Chinatown一个散放的公寓入边我可以依家有三口人I'mLou Yi Lee Li. um, I live in Chinatown SO building there are three people in my family我有一个十岁的彩和我老公同我依家住在一起但在这么一个六月份我的好坏就增加多一个新的 baby了 <音樂><音樂> Um my husband and I and a ten year old son live in this uh SL unit. In June we have a newborn. Uh in my building our unit is only um six by six feet and we share everything. 呃我哋個房呢,連放一張書枱嘅位置呢都冇辦法俾到小朋友,小朋友根本就冇空間去學習,我哋居住個環境就比較差. Uh, uh, can even fit a desk in our room for our son to do homework. Um the condition is a little bit worse in in our Pretty bad for a kid to grow up. Uh, We are very supportive of the five-year plan that COH proposed. We hope the city would pass this proposal. we need more housing for rare low income people So that our families would have decent housing, our kids would have a good place for them to live and study, so that homeless families, homeless people would have housing. For a long time, our hope is to have a good housing, for our children. I urge everyone to help us fulfill our dream to have kids
0: better housing for our families. Thank you. Thank you you so much for coming to speak, and thank um, you, Ms. Chu, for translating. I know you also had a speaker card as well, so... uh, I have
40: a speaker card, too. Um, just want to tell people there's hope amidst all the homelessness in our city. Um, recently, 18 SL families moved into Broadway Sansom apartment. That is a concerted effort of, um, the HSA, uh, housing developers, and also the Mayor's Office of Housing. We think things can happen. It makes such a difference for families that can move into decent housing. It's really a big deal. Um, However, those opportunities are really few. I hope that there's a, a way for us to do it. And San Francisco does know how to make that happen. Right before us, the five-year plan is things that are possible. They They are things that the city, all of us, can work on to make it happen. So thank you for the hearing. Thank you for making this a topic for us to look at, to discuss, to make real. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Chu. I know you've been in this position for 24 years now at CCDC, so it's great to hear that you think that, the, that we can end this issue, right. that there's hope. Let's um, hope. I had called a number of speaker cards. Um, please feel free to come up. If not, I'm going to call other speaker cards that I haven't called yet. Um, I only had um, two other speaker cards. I have Elizabeth Archer and Jenny Friedenbach. A
41: couple from the previous batch.
0: I did, but no one came up, so.
41: That's, uh, she's one of them. Yeah.
0: So just please, if you want to stand so I have, an, a sense. Thanks.
41: Um, hola,
38: buenas tardes. Mi nombre es eh, eh, Betty Vasquez. Betty Vasquez, perdón. Um, el motivo de estar acá es, señores, para que ustedes sigan aportando. Uh, se les agradece de antemano, pero yo soy una madre, aparte de madre soltera. Tengo mis dos hijas, una de seis años en kindergarten, otra de catorce años.
41: Good afternoon, my name is Besti Vasquez, I appreciate this opportunity. The reason I'm here is to request for your support. I'm a single mother, I have two children, one that is six years old and another one that is 14, uh, 14. 14. I'm 14 years old. A
38: uh-huh. uh, próximo año a uh, high school, y gracias a Dios, me han correspondido, eh, me gusta de veras eh, trabajar. Uh, pues hasta ahorita no tengo una vivienda y sí la necesito.
41: Um, I really appreciate that my children are really good. Um, I like to work. I'm a hard-working person. Nevertheless, I do not have a house and I really need a house.
38: Yeah. Uh, mi país es Honduras, pero la verdad la delincuencia, a lo que estamos viviendo allá, pues es un poco de seguridad en ese país. Y la verdad que habiendo trabajo y luchando, aspirando por el futuro de nuestros hijos, estamos acá.
41: I am originally from Honduras, uh, however, the situation in Honduras is really difficult because of crime. Um, I am here to work and uh, hopefully earn a better future for m- m- my children And i
38: um, pues, um, como les digo de antemano, gracias y espero pues, sigan apoyando señores, aportando than pueden dar. Y, uh, ayudando para porque ya el futuro en est, um, son los niños y la verdad pues es de la única manera que podemos seguir adelante
41: Thanks in advance for your help um, I encourage you to keep supporting uh, the initiatives for housing the future of uh, our city is the children and that's the way we're going to uh, stand up mm-hmm.
38: No gracias mm-hmm. y gracias
41: Gracias Miss Vázquez uh, good afternoon. My name is Raul Fernandez Berriosabal. I'm here with the SRO Families United Collaborative. And uh, briefly, um, I promise to be brief, I thank you for your time. Um, as we all know, there is, San Francisco is facing like, an unprecedented housing crisis. Uh, some estimates calculate between 7,000 and 12,000 homeless individuals. Probably one third of them are children. There is 2,300 children, homeless children enrolled in the San Francisco Unified School District. And probably the, the amount is probably twice as many because uh, many of those children are under five and are enrolled in the San Francisco School District. Um, as we know, the average rent surpasses the $3,000, and uh, the average um, uh, income for a family earning uh, minimum wage would be about $1,500. So um, the SROs still are like one of the, the um, last avenues out there for, for homeless families, and I don't really need to elaborate on what an SRO, living in an SRO, is all about. Probably all of you guys have visited. You know, we're talking about rooms that are 6x6, six 10x10, six, 10 10, you stretch your arms probably you touch both walls of the SRO. Many of them have uh, infestations, exposure to lead, abusive landlords, uh, disrespectful staff, you name it. And some of these ones go for as high as uh, 11, uh, 1,100, 1,200. So it's really difficult for, for homeless families uh, to live under these uh, circumstances. In the SRO Collaborative, Families United Collaborative, starting started in 2001. And since, we've only mo- been able to transition 40 families into um, supportive housing. 18 of them came in the Broadway Samsung apartments that uh, my supervisor Angela Chu was talking uh, recently. So uh, 18 of these families received the loss subsidy, local operating subsidies that are like the solution that we're proposing, Coalition on Homelessness. Chinatown CDC to transition these families to permanent housing I think is realistic. We're talking about San Francisco being perhaps uh, the most affluent city in the United States and only 2% of the budget is dedicated to, to homelessness. So I thank you for your support to these initiatives.
0: Thank you.
42: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Anker. I am I'm the program director at Compass Connecting Point and we hold the family waitlist for family shelters. Um, as holder of the waitlist, um, I've been there eight years, and we've seen the numbers go up significantly over the years. Uh, Jeff touched on the numbers earlier, but they went from 70-something when I started back in 2008 all the way up to 287. Um, and during that time, there have been two times when we've seen those waitlist numbers go down. The first was in 2011 when the Home for the Holidays package came through, and we saw an infusion of both rental subsidy money and an effective partnership with Housing Authority. Um, the second time was recently within the last year and a half when um, HSA has funded several new permanent supportive housing buildings and we've managed to successfully house 125 around um, chronically homeless families and taken them out of the system. As a result, the waitlist numbers have gone down significantly and we now have 137 families waiting for shelter. Um, right now they're waiting probably six months, whereas before they were waiting eight, nine, ten, sometimes even eleven months for shelter. Um, those permanent supportive housing units, though, are now full, and we don't have any more permanent supportive housing units in the pipeline, um, and we're looking at that resource slowing down, and we're looking at those waitlist numbers going right back up to eight, nine, or ten months that families are having to wait for a family shelter. Um, If we don't proactively and aggressively continue to look at concrete, affordable housing options for families, we will see those numbers go back up again. Um, We as a community, we know what works. We know what's brought those numbers down in the past, and we know how to do it again in the future. Um, We as a community have been working on this roadmap to end family homelessness, and it's a very concrete, very workable solution, and I urge you guys to support it.
0: Thank you, Ms. Aker.
43: Hi, Jennifer Friedenbach, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness, and I'm also a mother of two. And being a mother kind of offers this other framework in which my children thrive in their home. And it just illustrates how important, I mean, we have a kitchen where we cook, a table where we do homework, share what happened during the day, talk about what happened um, during the night, whether they got a good night's sleep, a bed to sleep in. Um, it's a place where they relax, where they laugh, where they play, where they act silly, where they let it all out, where they break down and lose it and are able to pull it back together. And so without that home, it's not having the framework. And it's a disaster for kids, a disaster. You know, at the end of the school year last year, we had 2,352 students without homes. Where were the alarm bells? Every time we have a family in the city with children that has lost their housing, the alarm bell should be going off. We are doing permanent damage to these kids. Permanent damage. And we're sitting by idly. Over the last 10 years, we've had 6,000 units of housing for homeless people, 7% for families with kids. I've been doing this job for 20 years. There is nothing that pisses me off more than the fact that our sheer neglect, sheer neglect, By our inaction, we are creating the situation. We are forcing children to go through this. We are going to be putting out a roadmap in the next couple weeks, and we are really sounding, all of us here, I want you to stand by my side, and I want you to sound those alarm bells with us. Sound them loud. Okay, because we have a really bad situation. We're looking forward over the next years and we're looking at the pipeline. We have housing coming in over the next couple of years. Hundreds of units of housing, of affordable housing, not one unit, not one unit for homeless households. That's what we're talking about. That's what Elizabeth was referring to. This is a disaster. We have skyrocketing rents, we have an eviction crisis, we have wages that are stagnant. We have a crisis here, but we can solve it. We know exactly how to do it, exactly how to do it. So stand by my side and ring those alarm bells. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Friedenbach.
44: Hi, supervisors. My name is Miguel Carrera. Pretty much you know me. Um, Well, so... That's pretty true, my, what my coworker, Jennifer Friedenbach, talking about. So, it's kind of really interesting, you know, and a serious problem we have in the city. What we're talking about from 2005 to 2015. And 2005, we have 800, 834 children's homelessness. And only the, we skip, we can say homelessness because it's visibles. We're never talking about homeless invisibles, too. What I mean says, because the city don't see in what is the homeless invisibles, is more than five hundred families living in SRO hotels. This is a big number. We're not talking about one family, we're not talking about one children. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of children's homelessness. So it's time to the the city, it's time to the mayor, it's time to the officials, putting more effort, putting more money to build and create housing, permanent housing for all the homeless families. I do an outreach in the shelters. Pretty much two, three hours a week to talk in the families, to bring in the families, to be part of the old plans, to be part of the old meetings, to decide how we wanna demand and telling the city to create and build housing to end in the homelessness in San Francisco. Please, supervisors, putting more efforts, putting more attention to this issue, because we need more housing for homeless families and children. Thank you so much, and have a great evening.
5: Thank you, Mr. Carrera. Are there any other members of the public that like to speak? Hi, my name is Kristen Keller. I apologize for not submitting a card. You don't need to um, submit a card. I've been providing intensive case management to homeless families at Compass Family Resource Center at Compass Family Services for the past uh, year, for over a year now. And I just wanted to point out that in terms of the impact um, on kids in particular, I've worked with several families who were either homeless on the streets um, or who ended up you know, having a nine-month wait to get into shelter, got into shelter, and uh, four of those families ended up in permanent supportive housing at Mercy Housing's 1184th Street. So since I've been working with those families intensively over, for over a year now, I've been in touch with several of the schools, teachers, principals, and counselors of those children, and many of whom have commented on the positive impact of housing on those children and how it's affected, you know, their behavior, their ability to do well in school, to focus, they show up on time, um, they come to school ready, prepared, fed. Awake um, So the impact is, is really, really, really significant of housing, even in just comparison to shelter, which is also oftentimes a stressful and temporary environment. So I just wanted to add that, that that the impact on kids is really significant, and it shows, and a lot of providers see that. Thank you. Thank you.
45: Buenos días, Bonjourno, Bonjour, Ohaya, Yasan, Kitchiko, Shalom, Cheerios, Guta Morgan, Good Morning America, Grits. You know, this article I want you to see is an article about when you were stoned. Yesterday was was Earth Day, and we know a million people were killed in Armenia, and we don't even talk about a Holocaust. That's what you call homeless. I would like for you in your action to use the word houseless. Because it was Ronald Reagan in 1966 who let out the Napa Valley people. Then he would go on to the federal government, ADS president, and start this word, what we call homeless. You know what? No one here is born homeless. Homeless is a state that our government and our people want people to incarnate to think of something as terror. Today I heard you talk about sexual assault. I heard you talk about uh, uh, people have been frightened. You know, the young kids, it's violence and assaults and sexual things that happen in school. They're happening in SROs and no one really cares about. So you don't want us to go, them to go from a child, but you let people stay in SROs in this city. Our police department, it has its 1% what it does to you. The Sheriff Department, the Fire Department this our city, this leadership is under question. In the last 10 years, I have called the police over 100 times. You can go online, one four one five sfw at com, and the password is 1961 to 2015. It will show you where since 2005, I've had police that come to SROs. Well, you all care nothing about us people in this city. Just like Feeling. Read this article about Feeling. He didn't want to yell a pair of people here. He said this was a white California. That was the... <phone rings> so get it. I think there's Thank no you, such Mr. word as homeless. Edmund. It's houseless. It's houseless. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um. Okay. If you would like to speak for public comment, if you could please stand up so I know how many more speakers before I gavel down.
30: So my name is Veronese. I'm a bilingual case manager at the Compass Family Resource Center as well. And um being Latina, I- also work mostly with the Latino
3: population. Mostly are undocumented. And I just wanted to put it out there that um, it's really hard to find resources for undocumented. Um, and especially house them because they, mostly they don't qualify because they don't have a social security number. Or because they cannot find work. And they're not able to pay rent. And especially the kids are suffering that as well. Because they they, they're they born here but their parents are not. So um, just wanted to put it out there that um, also taking consideration the undocumented ones. and. Um, yeah thanks
0: thank you so much seeing no further public comment I'm gonna close public comment at this time Um, I just want to thank um, all the members of the public that came but also stayed I I note that we had at least nine cards that probably had to leave that we did not hear from today, and I do just want to apologize that we weren't able to hear from you. But the testimony was very powerful. Um, And so I didn't give committee members time to speak before public comment, Um, so this is the time to speak or ask questions. I did hear one question. A lot of folks had talked about a five-year plan, and I don't think everyone on this committee is familiar with what that five-year plan is. I was going to bring up Mr. Kozinski and maybe Ms. Friedenbach. I don't think – is Ms. Akers still here? Um, to maybe respond to questions. So that was one of the questions. Are there any other uh, members of the committee that would like to speak? Okay. So there was a question that was asked about what is the five-year plan that some of the members of the public had alluded to wanting support for. So we are in the process of working
43: on, and a lot of
0: the community organizations that
43: were here and a lot of the families have been working on this, and it's a five-year roadmap that lays out exactly how we could end the family homeless crisis in San Francisco. Um, it would cost about $11 million over five years, and it would basically um, build on some of the successes that we've had. Um, it would put several hundred... Um, operating subsidies into affordable housing projects that are already being built. It would um, expand the access to uh, private market subsidies. Um, It would prioritize turnover units to homeless households. And taken all together, we've been able to identify about 2,300 exits out of homelessness. um, altogether, including the efforts that the city's currently funded that you have been hearing about
0: today. Thank you, that is very helpful.
11: I would just add to that, that it is building on, when we spoke about the wait list dropping and the numbers in the schools dropping, it really is building on the successes that we have already had. I mean, really, the the, the past year is, is proof that the five-year plan actually will work. But as, as Liz said, if we um, pull back, um, the numbers will just go back up again. Right,
0: right. I, you know, I just want to... Um, just add one thing, because I, I hear a lot from our providers, a lot of which are actually in the district that I represent, which is awesome. Um, but, you know, I, I hear so much from Hospitality House, from you, Jeff, and from Compass Point that, you know, we're seeing an unprecedented number of families um, in our drop-in centers, um, on our shelter list. And I, I just am curious, you know, and I think for a lot of um, folks in San Francisco, what are the primary drivers that you're seeing behind this?
11: Why, the increase happened? Mm-hmm. So if you take a look at um, homeless uh, single adults, for example, and the population of sing- the single adult homeless population in the city, we did have some pretty good results in significantly decreasing that population by about 25 percent. And while other cities around the country are starting to see double-digit increases, San Francisco's done an amazing job at holding the numbers um, steady or, or continuing to decline. Um, however, the same level of investment has not been made in permanent housing for families in the city. A lot of the supportive housing I believe it was forty percent or more of the affordable housing built um, during the past ten years was for homeless single adults, whereas the number of units that were put online for homeless families was i believe seven percent of that um, of that amount so that 's a huge driver. Um, is just the lack of investment in affordable housing during that period of time, as well as, of course, the recession um, had a huge impact on families' um, earning capacity. I believe I heard somewhere today that during the past few years, um, the lowest um, Income uh, levels of people who are 60% and below have lost during the past two years $1,100 of their buying power, whereas folks at the, the upper end have had like, you know, tremendous increases in their buying power. All of these things have conspired to cause this dramatic increase
43: we like sunny and here. Um, the, <laughs> the other piece is the eviction. So there's a, a large chunk of the um, homeless families that become homeless as a direct result of evictions. Um, depending on the data source between 35 and 40 percent. Um, and then many families get evicted and then they end up staying with friends and relatives and then, um, that isn't able to last, and the, the other piece is, is that because of the rising rents and the you know the skyrocketing, all those casual living arrangements and being able to you know find housing when, for example, a domestic violence incident occurs, uh, they are disappearing, and so um, families are really stuck in a way that they haven't been in the past.
0: No, I, I think that's really helpful. I think what's been really disheartening for me is one of our most successful programs is our our lost. Um, and our our, our rental subsidy program, which I know many of you advocated for years ago at the Board of Supervisors and we funded here at the city, and now we're finding that that rental subsidy that often prevent families from becoming homeless and keeping families in place, the $250, the $300 isn't enough anymore um, to keep up with um, the market the market rent and it's it's actually getting more expensive for the city um to continue to house um our families that um are are a are threat of becoming homeless or vulnerable to um to that. Um I, I just want to thank everyone for coming um today to speak. This is a really, really important issue. It's it's an issue that uh really uh brings together both the city and the school district and having served on both bodies um I I just know that sometimes we work in silos, even though we're working with the same kids or the same families, and it's really great to see that we finally have funding to bring our service providers directly in our schools and to provide additional support for our principals and teachers. And And Jeff, your story in the December press conference was really touching about the counselor or social worker um, that cried because they finally knew what they were able to do because they wanted to support these, um, the children in the schools, but just didn't have the resource or not know how, how to do that. And the fact that that connection is finally happening um, really matters. But also having a supply of housing units and being able to fund that is obviously a key piece of ending homelessness. And I really appreciate the effort, but not just to bring the stories out, but actually bringing some concrete solutions that we can fund um, to make this a reality, because I know none of us want to see more of our youth and families um, out on the street, and they're often the invisible face of homelessness, which is, I think, why single adults get so much attention, because that, that's who people see on the streets and view as being homeless, and that we often forget um, to take care of the folks that are more invisible, that are maybe couch surfing or are just hidden kind of in, in and, um, and not working to house that um, cohort as well. I don't see any um, members on the rosters. So I'm not sure if anyone would like to make closing comments um, before I close this item. Okay. Wow, okay. Um, so yes I, I know I realize we've gone long. So I um, I'm going to, sh- should we make a motion to file or a motion to continue? Okay so <laughs> we'll make a motion to continue this so we have a motion we can do that without opposition. And seeing no further items, Mr. Clark, meeting no is now adju- Meeting is now adjourned.